Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. John Brown, his truth is marching on. If we go into any black neighborhood today, whether north, south, midwest, or west, and ask the question, which three white men are most admired, I'd wager most would answer with perhaps the following. One, Jesus. Two, John F. Kennedy. And three, John Brown. I grew up in a project home where my mother had a painting of a blue-eyed Jesus next to a photo of John F. Kennedy on the living room wall. Only after his 1968 assassination did the face of Martin Luther King Jr. get placed in the middle. The point is that, in black memory, John Brown holds a treasured place. His example, his sacrifice, and yes, his fight against slavery made him a name that would not be forgotten. That's because blacks know almost instinctively that whites who would put their lives on the line for blacks are rare creatures. Yet whites try their damnedest to forget him. Remember, he's crazy. How we reconcile his memory and his meaning for America will go a long way toward determining whether, how, and indeed if we work together to try to go about social change. It comes down to something that is also incredibly rare, and that's trust. During the 60s, as Stoughton Lynn remembers, blacks in SNCC, or the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, urged their white members to leave for a few years while both blacks and whites got it together. As he notes, those few years turned into decades and don't seem any closer even as we open a new century. Later in the 60s and early 70s, a group tried to aspire to John Brown's high standard, the SDS, or Students for a Democratic Society. As a member of the formation has recently noted, it broke from within, chiefly because of the toxin of white supremacy. David Gilbert, writing of the split, informs us, SDS split apart along the basic fault line of the U.S. bedrock of white supremacy. Between the desire for a potential majority base among white Americans and the urgent need for militant solidarity with black and other third world struggles, one side, invoking a Eurocentric Marxism, said that revolution was about the working class and used that as a left cover for retreat from fighting alongside Vietnam and the Panthers, claiming all nationalism is reactionary. The other side, inspired by Marxist-led third world struggles, rightly saw solidarity with national liberation as a priority for any revolutionary movement worthy of that name. However, we wrongly abandoned efforts to organize significant numbers of white people, which also limited our base for anti-racist activism. That's from the book No Surrender, Writings from an Anti-Imperialist Political Prisoner, David Gilbert. The children who claim John Brown's paternity could not measure up to the man. As long as whites can opt out of a true revolutionary movement and the state will provide every opportunity, then they will do so, especially when the forces of repression ratchet up the pressure. In the MOVE organization, when the conflict between the state and the organization hardened, we saw whites and other races peel away from the movement, leaving its mostly black core. When the going gets rough, whites get going, it seems. 
That was the meaning and intent of the killing of a white housewife from Detroit named Viola Liuzzo, slain by the Klan in Alabama, but also defamed by the FBI for the capital crime of being, like John Brown, a nigger lover. In a white supremacist state, there is no greater crime that a white national can commit. Consider, if you will, the main offense for which John Brown was convicted, sentenced, and executed. Treason. This for a man who fought successfully for the inclusion of an article in the 1858 Chatham Constitution over objection, which forbade any attempt to overthrow any state or the federal government. Brown, in defense of Article 46, argued, The old flag is good enough for me. Under it, freedom was won from the tyrants of the old world for white men. Now I intend to make it do duty for black men. By so doing, he betrayed whiteness and earned the moniker mad. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are produced by Noel Hanrahan for Prison Radio. The Cows. Justice. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism, white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, October 30th, 2014. So I have been told, invest if you think the program is constructive, racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Listener-supported, counter-racist radio. Thanks for all the folks who have pitched in, supported over the years, uh, almost six years on the air, hopefully giving out constructive information. Uh, the voice you heard at the top of the program, uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, uh, his commentary on uh, John Brown, uh, as well as some of the other white folks, uh, members of Students for Democratic Society uh, and others who uh, have participated uh, in working against racism, white supremacy, allegedly. Uh, thought that would be a fitting way to begin the program for today. We'll see uh, if it relates. Uh, this broadcast, I think, if you have been listening for at least a few months, uh, towards the end of the summer, uh, they did a segment uh, on public radio just talking about uh, Ann Braden, and I had not heard her name before. Um, and I say all the time, hey, I'm not an expert on racism, but I didn't know anything about her, what she did, nothing. And uh, I always think it is fascinating to study uh, white outliers, uh, that is, white people who function, talk as if they are not in support of racism, white supremacy. They tend to be uh, pretty rare, uh, and I think it can be fascinating. I think, in fact, uh, it can reveal a lot about what it means to be a white person uh, and something that I say pretty regularly, that if you are a white person, you cannot be ignorant about racism because white people, other white people, will let you know when you have made an error. And I think the subject for today's broadcast, uh, that will be readily apparent. Uh, but as I started digging on Ann Braden to find out who, who was this white woman uh, who is revered, and you can see photos if you look online, you'll see her with Rosa Parks and uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Fred Shuttlesworth. I mean, it's quite impressive. Uh, Angela Davis, uh, Dr. Cornel West, lots of them, Dr. Angela Davis as well. Uh, you'll see her with a lot of uh, black people who are internationally known 
for their efforts against racism, white supremacy. Uh, you can read more about Anne Braden and how she made these connections uh, in the book we're going to discuss today, Subversive Southerner, Anne Braden and the Struggle for Racial Justice in the Cold War. Uh, privileged to have on the program the author of that text. Uh, she is a professor at the University of Louisville, uh, an associate professor of women's and gender studies associated with the history department at the University of Louisville. She is also the current director of the University of Louisville and Braden Institute for Social Justice. Uh, she also worked on a documentary film uh, on Anne Braden as well. Real pleasure to have her on the broadcast. Joining us live, our guest, Dr. Catherine Fossil. Uh, Dr. Fossil, you're with us? Yes, I'm here. Thanks. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your time. Real pleasure to have you on the program. Looking forward to constructive dialogue. Uh, for our listeners, uh, this might be their first time hearing about who you are and your work. Uh, anything that you think it would be helpful for listeners to know about you before we get started? Well, I mean, you gave my, um, you know, my scholarly bio, and that pretty much uh, tells a, an entree to the work that I do. I mean, I teach in the Department of Women's and Gender Studies. I'm a historian by training. My background is in uh, journalism and community organizing and social work before I uh, went back to school and got my PhD in history. I had been involved, quite involved in um, peace, justice, feminism-related work in the 1980s, uh, and that is how I ran across the story of Anne Braden. So really, ever since I read her memoir that was written back in 1958 when she was still a fairly young woman, um, that told a riveting tale of uh, an act of racist, well, a, an act of uh, a, a challenge to racism and housing segregation here in Louisville, Kentucky in 1954, and the racist violence that, uh, you know, um, that that action provoked, and then the power of the state in the Cold War South, in the McCarthyism South, being directed against Anne Braden and her husband, Carl, and they were indicted and charged with sedition, which was really the equivalent of being a race traitor in relation to the work that they had done at that time. So I discovered her story as a, as a young woman, and I've really been very seized by it ever since. I wrote the biography of her upon her death here in Louisville, because I had been hired as a, you know, in the, on the faculty here, I was one of two founders of the Anne Braden Institute for Social Justice Research, actually social justice research. You don't often think of those two terms together. But um, I write on the African-American freedom movement. I'm especially interested in the role of whites and women in the movement, and that's me in a nutshell. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, hopefully we can cover as much material as possible, and uh, folks listening in have questions and encourage you to dial in as well. Um, you are a white woman, is that correct? I am. Mm -hmm. Okay. From Georgia, raised in Georgia, uh, came of age uh, during the battles over school desegregation, uh, started school in the 1960s, uh, and was caught in those battles uh, in my 
you know, teenage years and um, really wasn't involved, was too young to get involved, but was always really troubled by, um, you know, the kind of racial hierarchy I grew up with and really inspired when I discovered that, in fact, there were rights that had opposed that hierarchy uh, mm. earlier in history as well. And Anne Graydon being a leading example, although, as you point out, she's not well known still today. It's not like my book, you know, got, uh, you know, that widely publicized. So it's still a chore to really get that story known. And I think it is a powerful and important story. Right on, right on. Um, what you call the racial hierarchy, um, I think mm -hmm. most accurately is, uh, I think, Anne Brayton used the term white supremacy, and I say specifically the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I use those two terms as synonyms, racism and white supremacy, and the definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you believe such a system exists? Do you think that's an accurate definition? Well, I do, except insofar as, um, you know, white supremacy uh, was an organizing, it was and is an organizing principle of, you know, the, sort of a, uh, the motor that ran American history and still to a great extent runs American politics. But as an ideology, I think that your definition gives a kind of intentionality about it that not everyone that is part of it subscribes to or even sees. And in fact, I think it's actually more insidious by virtue of you know, um, Angela Davis once said to me that, uh, you know, ideology, how we see ideology is like, does a fish understand water? It's just part of what we breathe and are. And so I think that for many whites, myself included, coming to see the reality of white supremacy it's a process, and there are a lot of institutions that actually obscure, obscure you from, you know, being clear on that process. So I think it's it's what you say, and it's like at its most intentional. But there's a, an almost um, invisible aspect to it too. That it's you know people like Anne Braid and her story. I think helps to bring that into focus. Okay. Um, and that hopefully we can have some, some pushback on, on the book and, and views because uh, that's something that I, like, vehemently disagree with. Um, that's one of those when I hear – because I hear that what you just said, it, it is uh, a pretty standard response from many mm -hmm. of the white people that we mm -hmm. talk to on this subject matter, that white people uh, are ignorant, uh, that it's a fish in water. You can't be aware. And that is totally – inaccurate. I'll restate what I said at the beginning. White people cannot be ignorant about racism. If you are a white person and you violate the codes of how you are supposed to conduct yourself as a white man, white woman, other white people mm -hmm. will let you know, which is exactly what happened 
with Ann Brayton. You do something that you are not supposed to do as a white person, other white people will let you know immediately, sometimes, and in very clear terms, so that you know exactly what it is that you did that you are not supposed to do and that there will be consequences if you continue to do Excellent illustration, Ann Brayton. Uh, so, and, and even without that, I contend that that is simply not true. And this happens all the time where uh, the power, the ubiquitousness of white supremacy uh, and the conduct of white people practicing racism gets greatly minimized. Uh, and I can also make one final uh, a quick point that uh, what you just said about it being invisible and all of that, I said consistently this is kind of a new wrinkle in the way that, and I suspect this just could be an act of racism to kind of obscure and not be accurate when we talk about what racism white supremacy is, uh, but it would have been impossible to say that just 50 years ago, right? If we, during oh, yeah. the heyday, to say that this is invisible, right? I mean, that would make no sense at all. That only works in a more refined era where you don't have signs up, you don't have sundown towns, you don't have white people running around willy-nilly calling black people nigger every five minutes. Uh, that even gets brought up mm -hmm. in this book. So uh, to me, it's, it's just not logical, that presentation, and I think I could use uh, the life and times of Anne Braden to make my point, uh, but the core of it, white people are not ignorant. This is not a case of they need to be informed or taught about racism, and that's not even relevant, really, at the end of the day. I just think it's important for new listeners, and I haven't seen any evidence that once white people, uh, and I also get this directly from the book, I haven't really seen any evidence that once white people get this information, they're going to stop practicing racism. I think Ann Braden had even come to that conclusion that people in power generally do not voluntarily just decide to practice justice. No, I would agree with you there, definitely. Okay. <laughs> the first part is really where the agreement should be at, because that's, that's just... Uh, just totally inaccurate uh, and should be challenged every time that the problem is that white people are ignorant. Um, I guess to kind of get in this, because I think some of these differences will be highlighted as we move through the book, um, just a, a quick synopsis, because we'll get into the details of some of the things that she did specifically during the 50s, 60s, uh, her interactions, the, the Wade uh, house purchase. Um, but what can you kind of give our listeners kind of a, a quick synopsis of her life up until she gets active and starts saying, hey, racism is a problem and I should be doing something about this? Oh, sure. Well, she did uh, come to that realization as a very young woman in her early 20s. But up until that time, I mean, she was raised, born here in Louisville, Kentucky, raised in Alabama, you know, in the, born in the 20s, raised in the 30s in an environment and by parents who not only did not question segregation, but as you say, you know, thought very openly that's the way it should be and really wasn't aware um, that there was a serious challenge to segregation because that was the way that she understood it at first. Um, you know, all through high school, college, began to, began to see the shape of that challenge in college because she went to college during the exact four years of World War II and the whole rhetoric about fascism sort of expose at least the ugly edges of racism, if not the whole system, to a lot of people that hadn't thought that way before. So she began to see that there were challenges. But she was a, she was a very devout Christian, so she was always very troubled by injustice of any kind 
And then when she came to Louisville to work as a young reporter here in her early 20s, she began to meet people who were more on the left, who were who were socialists, who were communists, who were kind of left-wing trade unionists. And that was the portion, of, that was sort of the wing of the civil rights movement that she got introduced to. Now, she also was aware of the more liberal wing, the NAACP. She was just assigned by chance to cover the... Um, the lawsuit that ended up desegregating the University of Kentucky in the late 40s. So there were a lot of forces coming together. You know, that was a moment in American history that we, I think today, most people don't know how, you know, there were sort of two ways to go at that point. But that, at the end of World War II, was a, a kind of progressive high watermark in many ways, both for you know, the struggle against racism and, and definitely the struggle for organized labor and economic justice. And she began to meet those people and began to began to know African Americans as equals for the first time. And that it was really that that caused her to sort of turn her life around and she a process she always called turning myself inside out and upside down and really renouncing the values that she had only really begun to question throughout college. Hmm. Uh, you write, uh, this is on page 72, uh, talking about part of this uh, realization about what it means to be white and the system of white supremacy, uh, her experience in the courtrooms in Alabama. Uh, this is kind of midway down the page on 72. Uh, her 1958 memoir, described it thus, in covering the Birmingham courthouse, I soon learned that there were two kinds of justice, one for whites and one for Negroes. If a Negro killed a white man, that was a capital crime. If a white man killed a Negro, there were usually extenuating circumstances, if not outright justification. If a Negro killed a Negro, that was just a nigger murder worth at most a year or so in prison. If a white man took advantage of a Negro woman, it never reached the courts. If a Negro so much as looked at a white woman in a way she thought improper, that was assault with intent to rape. Over the door of the Birmingham courthouse are inscribed the words of Thomas Jefferson, equal and exact justice to all men of whatever state or persuasion. I read it every morning when I went to work until finally I began looking the other way as I entered the building. Uh, th those are all her words from her uh, autobiography. Uh, you write, just continuing, how narrow, how narrow her angle of vision may have been once race compared to what it became later and could not ignore the rigid racial apartheid in Birmingham, especially the blatant miscarriages of justice she observed in court and the way most whites turned their backs on them. In that context, Jefferson's words began to make her literally sick to her stomach, and she had a hard time maintaining emotional distance from what was going on in front of her. I'll stop right there. When I read that text, the first thing I said was, I wonder what opinion she had of Thomas Jefferson before this, um, slave-owning rapist Thomas Jefferson. Uh, what was her original thoughts about this guy, uh, to why this would now all of a sudden be revolting 
uh, to see this. That's number one. I also thought that was so stark because that really further makes my point, that white people are not ignorant. I think you, or excuse me, she said, and you just quoted, that you could not ignore the injustice that was being played out on a daily basis. Uh, she says that mm-hmm. explicitly, and I agree 1,000%. And this continues today. Exactly what she laid out is ongoing. 2014 has not changed at all, and they've done studies to support that. So uh, I'm of the opinion if white people pay attention at all, they go to a courtroom, sit in one day, and particularly if you're a judge, attorney, you have to be aware, wow, they are still, the system of racism, white supremacy is still at work. It's just, it's very obvious, and that, to me, just further bolsters what I said at the beginning. I was going to go to her parents, but did you want to respond? Well, I guess what I wanted to say is that, you know, she's always likened her whole process of sort of coming to awareness of this as like a, a photo, like, in the in the developing fluid becoming clear like she had always known there was something wrong but she didn't know quite what it was so probably her attention was directed to other aspects of thomas jefferson in the earlier years of her education when she wasn't you know her eyes weren't fully open to this but it's one thing i wanted to say is that even though she did have that reaction in her first job in alabama as a newspaper reporter her and her impulse at that point was to run away. It was not to try to do battle with racial injustice. It was more to run away and pursue her newspaper career outside of, like, you know, Birmingham, so to speak. But it was really only coming to Louisville and meeting these key people that had such a profound influence on her that she really became an activist, that she really joined her life to what she always called the other America, which is like those, you know, people of color and whites that have always throughout American history uh, worked against the grain, worked to destabilize and topple that system of white supremacy. And not just white supremacy, but imperialism, war, injustice, etc. That... uh... I just I have uh, major uh, concerns about works uh, like these uh, for some of the reasons that she just pointed out uh, when you were talking about her and Brayden being influenced by the black people and white people uh, who worked mm-hmm. against the system of white supremacy. And I feel that, um, as I said, it's very important to speak accurately, honestly, about racism, white supremacy, and to be accurate about what it means to be a white person. Uh, and I think it's mm-hmm. it's to me, it's obvious that there simply have not been large numbers of white people, significant numbers of white people uh, working against racism, that that is just not accurate. Uh, And I think uh, we incorrectly are given that impression frequently, uh, where people will cite John Brown or Dr. Peggy McIntosh, Jane Elliott, Tim Wise, Mm -hmm. Andrew Goodman, uh, Michael Schwerner, uh, Viola Louisa. (laughs) They will cite all these people as though there have been uh, millions, billions of quote-unquote, good, well-intentioned white people. And that is absolutely not true. In fact, in my opinion, it obscures the truth that typically what you can expect from white people uh, to varying degrees is Ann Brayton's dad. Uh, And this is on page 64. And you can let me know if that's accurate or not, but I think this book bolsters what I'm saying. This is on page 64 
some of this, and you, you do quote a lot from uh, Ann Brayton interviews, her book, and all that, so you really get a flavor. Uh, you get to hear her voice directly. So this starts off you, and then it goes into uh, Ann Brayton's own words. Uh, when Ann wrote about the family conflict in her 1958 memoir, she told of a troubling conversation with a southern white man of a generation older than mine. What she did not say was that the man was her father, a fact she did not wish to reveal during his lifetime. Their confrontation gives eloquent testimony to the beginnings of her journey far from the Southern traditions of her upbringing. As Anne described it in her book, Gambrel McCarty was infuriated that I, a Southern girl, supposedly well-bred, could express such treason support for a federal anti-lynching law. Suddenly, in the heat of the argument, he said, we ought to have a good lynching every once in a while to keep the nigger in his place. I was speechless. I could not believe what I had heard. To the day I die, I think I will hear those words ringing in my ears. A moment later, when he was calmer, he regretted what he had said. I still have doubts that this particular man would ever himself join a lynch mob, but in a very profound sense, he meant exactly what he had said. A gentle, apparently civilized man, he had already committed murder in his heart and mind. I thought to myself then and have often wondered since, what could segregation ever do to the Negro as terrible as the thing it has done to this white man? I'll stop there. Uh, is that an accurate statement to say that under the system of racism, white supremacy, which you generally can expect from white people, males and females, is to varying degrees uh, what she talks about with her father here? Well, I think, um, you know, it, there's, there's a continuum. But, yes, I think that uh, that is a very consistent thread and many people that have held and still hold the, the reins of power in this country you know, have felt that way. They might not put it that way today, but they, you know, they would put it in a, you know, racism would not, uh, very few people would say they, that we need to have a lynching, but they would make other excuses. So, yes, I do agree with you. And I wouldn't, I was not saying, uh, and I certainly don't think Anne would ever say that it was millions and billions, certainly not of whites, uh, but only that there is there has been a small core of committed people, whites, and an obviously much larger number of blacks. So not all blacks either, even in American history, that have really dedicated themselves to ending this evil. Not that that those are the masses but that there have been, you know, always African-Americans leading that struggle and always a small core of whites who committed themselves along with them. Not, I mean, not the masses, not by any stretch of the imagination that we wish it would be. Mm. I'm going to respond by reading directly from uh, Ms. Brayden. Uh, this is on page 218. Uh, she writes, 
and or it starts off you and then it goes third. And use the power of the printed word as effectively as her small venue would allow. When she featured a community action in The Patriot, she sent multiple copies of that issue to the locals. This is Ann Braden's words. Somebody's struggle is more real if they see it in print. Uh, we probably overplayed when whites spoke up and did something, but we wanted to point that out. We wrote a lot, obviously, about black struggles, but if whites were doing anything, we said so. Once they saw something in print and realized it was significant enough for somebody to notice it, made, uh, to notice it that made it more likely they could keep struggling. Uh, I feel like just that sort of uh, commentary, in my opinion, it obscures the truth of the matter. I keep emphasizing that. Most of the people say consistently we need to have conversation on racism. Uh, the value of that conversation would have to be that we're being honest, we're being accurate when we talk about racism. And in my view, when we overplay uh, the number, significance of these white people who allegedly worked against racism, and I have to, to continue to assert allegedly because, and I would love, I would love, love, love to have been able to ask Ann Braden some of these questions to see, okay, you say you're a white person that is down to help, like, do you think it would be accurate for non-white people to be suspicious of every white person and to think that this white person is probably a racist to see what she would say, even, even of her, to see what she would say? Since I can't ask her, I'll ask you. Do you think it's logical uh, for non-white people to be suspicious of any and every white Absolutely. person? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a natural human reaction. And if, I mean, I've heard Anne address this question and, I think what she would say is that, you know, that she herself, as much as she was, I think, a very a very rare sort of leading edge white person in this regard, that no white person ever rids themselves entirely of, of the toxin of racism. Hmm. That it's a, something that you have to keep struggling to do. Hmm. Yeah. That's the, and even in my opinion, I think that could be an act of racism because uh, it somehow it ends up being diluted uh, where white people just don't speak honestly in terms of their involvement, their participation uh, in keeping the system of racism, white supremacy going. Like that, that final sentence that I read where she was talking about her dad where he's saying, yeah, it's good to have a, a lynching every now and then to kill a black person. Uh, where she gets to the end and she says, what could segregation ever do to the Negro as terrible as the thing it has done to the white man? Um, when we give responses like that where white people are painted as victims, I think she starts off uh, early. This is in the introduction uh, where you write, where you're saying that, that the, the quote-unquote segregation or racism uh, is repressive for white people. Uh, this idea that white people, too, are being victimized by this, I think it just it, it completely removes it from no, white people are not ignorant, they're informed, and they are dedicated to the practice of racism, as I've given in my, uh, in my definition for racism. It just, doesn't, it just doesn't give an accurate picture, and I would say that that is consistent if, I, if we move to the Wade incident, uh, something I didn't know about until I read your book. Um, for listeners, I guess to, to kind of just give them a quick synopsis, and then I'll get into some of the details of what I'm talking about. But you want to uh, kind of let them know Andrew Wade, Charlotte Wade, who they are, and how they came into the Braden's life. Sure. I mean, um, it was the 1950s. This was a relatively prosperous era uh, for for many Americans. Andrew Wade 
was a successful electrician, World War II veteran, African-American young man, uh, married with one little girl and another one on the way. Like so many Americans of all races of that era, he and his family wanted to move to a new home in the suburbs, and they were unable in the kind of housing market, the segregated, uh, segregationist real estate policies and practices, not laws. I mean, he wasn't breaking any laws by trying to buy a house in the suburbs, but he simply could not find any realtor that would sell one to him in the area that they wanted to buy in. And actually, a real estate agent suggested that he find some sympathetic whites to buy a house on his behalf. The Bradens were known to be uh, staunch supporters of civil rights and equal rights for African Americans. He really didn't know the, the Bradens very well, but he approached them and asked them if they would act as the fronts for him and his family to purchase a new home in the suburbs in 1954. Uh, that the Bradens did not feel that they could do anything but say yes. If these were their convictions, they had to put their, you know, actions where their words were. They did it. Um, it was not, uh, the neighbors did not react well, to put it mildly, uh, when they realized it was a black family moving in. The very day that the waves moved in, a cross was burned out across from their lot. Uh, shots were fired through the front picture window of their home when they were trying to sleep their first night there. There was a rock with a racial epithet thrown through the broken windows. And they were just greeted with, you know, violence and intimidation. That was the beginning. It just kept on going. Um, the newspapers, the politicians were critical of the Bradens for forcing an issue like this. Uh, it was a very bad situation. Uh, and six weeks later, that house was dynamited. <laughs> this is on... Uh, page 139, um, <laughs> Lult, excuse me, uh, once approached, Ann and Carl felt a moral imperative to agree to Andrew Wade's request for help. The response was, as Ann characterized it, automatic. She wrote of their moment of decision that any other answer would have been unthinkable. Lulled into a false sense of optimism by the relatively liberal atmosphere that continued to thrive in Louisville and by local civil rights gains of the past decade, the Bradens were largely oblivious to the power of pro-segregationist ideology in their, mind, in their midst and the additional boost it received from the anti-communist conservatism because they lived in a subculture that validated interracial friendships and civil rights gains. The couple overestimated progressive trends in Louisville and vastly underestimated the hostility their act would provoke. In addition, they were too preoccupied with a local drive for school desegregation in, in anticipation of Brown to really ponder Wade's request too deeply. Only a few days before Wade first approached them and had helped to coordinate a hearing at the state capitol, part of a campaign to repeal the day law mandating segregated schooling. Uh, I'll stop there, but uh, just that right there uh, in terms of underestimating the hostility that this act would provoke from quote-unquote well-meaning 
liberal white people, I just it further underscores my point about that's generally what you can expect from a white person. That's what you should be expecting, something that's a lot closer to, to what you get from her dad, which seems to be the case from these liberal, well-meaning white people. That's number one. And number two, I just – if you are in Brigham at this time, you've been to college, you're paying attention, you're talking to folks, you're a journalist, you pay attention to the news, you write, you had massive make, uh, race, well, not even what they call race riots, white terrorism in Detroit around the same issue, uh, residential situation. Exactly, exactly. This has happened over and over and over, not just in the South, in the North. This has happened repeatedly. And you don't expect, you don't think that this could be a problem? Like you underestimate, you have no clue uh, that, wow, this could result in, you know, somebody dying, uh, the house being bombed and shot at and all of this. Like, wow, either I have to think you are a really stupid white person uh, and you're not really going to be able to help me solve this problem uh, or you're not being honest. Uh, for me, it would, it would be one of the two. I mean, to, to have the – and I mean, we're in Kentucky. It's not even like we're talking way in the north. That is just stunning for me, and it just continues to emphasize my point that that is what happens typically uh, when we go through all of this of trying to find good white – liberal white people, progressive white people, and invariably you end up getting the same racist behavior even from many of these quote-unquote liberal progressive white people. Um, so you're trying to argue that by helping the Wades, they were actually being racist? That's not what I'm saying at all, but by fronting and getting them this house and underestimating and really not being able to act adequately prepare them for what they were going to face, uh, I would not be jumping up and down like, oh, my gosh, these folks are legendary. I cannot believe the courage of uh, Ann Braden. I would really stand on that firmly because they didn't bomb the Braden's house. They bombed the Wade's house. They didn't shoot in the Braden's house. They shot into the Wade house, the black family. They didn't go throw rocks with nigger and all the other nasty things. They didn't do that at the Braden house. They did that at the Wade's house. Well, they did house. do some of it, but you're right. It's certainly the Wade exploited them to this. And that's what I mean. They're still white. I mean, as you said that Miss mm -hmm. uh, Braden would concede if you're a white person, that contamination, but I would just say the practice. You are a practitioner in the system of racism, white supremacy. That is still true, even doing all of that. And I just feel like a lot of that gets lost for something that, I mean, if I'm looking at it like the full scope of this story, like what problem did this solve? Did this, you know, how did this contribute to ending racism with the Wade family? The house is bombed. They ultimately can't even stay there and have to move. And I think particularly Charlotte Wade is, is really traumatized. I, would, I mean, how could you not be super traumatized? She definitely was. She definitely uh, was. I mean, well, we just had a, 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 we right now have an exhibit that um, I was among the group that, that curated in our public library remembering this set of episodes because it's 60 years ago right now this fall and um you know charlotte way didn't is still living and didn't come to the program but her grandchildren came and they they read a statement from her that said once you start something like this all you can do is endure so indeed it was traumatic but, you know, Gus, I can't just quite go there with you because um, I think that, you know, the Bradens did uh, 
they did initially try to talk Andrew Wade out of this idea of why not just move somewhere in one of the more mixed neighborhoods where African-Americans were being welcomed more and more in some of the inner suburbs. But once Wade, like, you know, demonstrated to them his determination to do this, then they felt that they should assist him in doing it if he wasn't able to do it himself. I mean, this is, you know... This wasn't Birmingham. This was uh, a city where there were a lot, I mean, the the libraries had just desegregated. The parks were in the process of desegregating the pools. There was uh, a veneer of progress. So I wouldn't put all, just like I wouldn't put all white people in the very same boat, I wouldn't put all times and all locations in the same boat either because I think you know historically we can say there was some naivete now to not anticipate this Uh, but I think the level of violence that um, that resulted and the level of you know, prosecution and persecution with which the state went after the Bradens as communists, as seditionists, was, you know, very specific to that moment in history. And the specific set of, you know, larger social and political conditions that were surrounding this purchase here in Louisville at that moment. Hmm. I would I would give some pushback, and I, I actually do have an incident that I would say is, in my opinion, uh, Anne Braden practicing racism. I wouldn't submit this one, but I'll pick the one that I think. Um, but just to give pushback, the, the suggestion that this isn't Birmingham, um, we are in a global system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I just said we just both are in agreement. I mean, it's a matter of, of record. Uh, the white terrorism in Detroit in 1943. That's above the Mason-Dixon mm-hmm. line. You had uh, this sort of thing in Chicago, in New York, all over, in areas where uh, we're not talking deep in the heart of Dixie that were a part of the Confederacy and what have you. you have I'm him- sorry, though, Beth. I can't go there with you. Hang on, I was speaking. You interrupted me. Uh, what mm-hmm. I'm saying is, uh, when you say, like Birmingham, uh, you might have more repressive uh, areas where racism, white supremacy is practiced, but the entire planet is dominated by racism, white supremacy. Their house was bombed. I think it was Birmingham. That's where the, you had the same type of racist behavior. These sort of things can happen anywhere under the system of racism, white supremacy. Now, yes, maybe it might be more prevalent where you have this sort of conduct in Birmingham, but this is pretty typical in terms of the response that you get from white people when they are upset about how racism or if they are feeling that their power as white people is being compromised, particularly around this housing issue. You see this replayed in Chicago a decade later with Dr. King and the violence he faced in Cicero. And if you want to talk about just bombing in general in terms of the way that uh, white people responded to the Bradens for a violation of their code uh, as being white people, white man, white woman, with her husband Carl Braden. The same thing happened in South Africa on a global level where white people started bombing and killing other white people who say, hey, you are acting as though you don't want to practice racism. You don't want to continue to mistreat these uh, Kaffirs 
Uh, and so we're going to deal with you, even including killing you. So I just I feel like, again, we're minimizing. We're, we're playing into that exact, if you want to call it naivete, I would say uh, just not being truthful, not being accurate about racism, white supremacy, to suggest that uh, this area is somehow special and you have quote-unquote progressive white people. You could, they allow the black people there to go to the library or what have you. We're still in the system of racism, white supremacy, and the white people, they demonstrated what I said. They bombed the house. They shot up the house. They did exactly what white people have done in many of these other areas. So, you know, just to, be, it, to give my view about it, I could be inaccurate. I'm sure people have a different perspective on how they read that part of the text. Uh, the incident that I would pick uh, that I would say is an act of racism on her part uh, and I'm, I'm fast-forwarding with the way thing. They, they do end up being charged with sedition for this. White people get very upset about them. Uh, ultimately, Ann Braden does not have to serve any time, and that goes on for a while, some interesting stuff there. But uh, I'm fast-forwarding to the incident where they have been charged again. Uh, her husband, Carl Braden, uh, is in prison, and Ann Braden, she wants Dr. King to put his name uh, on her petition to help get him out of prison. Um, skipping forward, this is on page, uh, let's see which one I want to use. This is on page two, 216. I, I don't have the book in front of me. Oh, it's all good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. Uh, wait a minute. Two, not 216, 273. I'm skipping forward a little bit. Okay. Uh, 273. The first step in Braden's fight back strategy was to, amount, was to mount support for Carl's clemency petition, which Anne had undertaken even before he went into prison. On her way back from California, she stopped in Atlanta to ask King to initiate the petition. Anne knew that King's leadership would bring more signers aboard than she could otherwise hope for. This is her words now. Martin had heard about the decision because it had been in the news and he was commiserating with me. He said, what can I do for you? And I said, I want you to initiate a clemency petition for Carl. When I say that now, it doesn't sound like much to ask, but I knew when I said it, and he did too, that it was a big request. People were afraid of the House on Un-American Activities Committee and afraid of people who had been condemned by the HUAC. He looked at me and kind of laughed, and he said, well. Uh, and she goes on to talk about how uh, there was absolutely nothing to be gained uh, from him doing this. Uh, if anything, it could cause him more problems. In my, in my view, her being a white person, putting this black person, Dr. King, who at this point is already well-known, and death threats, the FBI is hounding him with their Pro uh, operation, which you reference in the book, um, to ask this black person to subject himself to possibly more trouble to help out her and her white husband when you had black people going to jail every day in massive numbers uh, for working against racism, mm -hmm. in my opinion, that is a major act of racism. And I think she knew what she was doing, that this is no way, shape, or form going to help Dr. King. If anything, this is just going to make more problems for him. Mm -hmm. Well, it's certainly an interesting uh, take on that. I think that uh, the one thing that you know, it, I think you make a good point, honestly. And yet, I think in the climate that was so widespread in the American South in those years to lift up just the right to dissent was really an important battle for others, black and white, not just the Bradens. And so I think that it ended up, you know, um, 
having a positive, I mean, it didn't get Carl clemency, okay, but I think it ended up being just one action that lifted up the right to dissent generally, which was very, very repressed in the South in those years. So that was holding back the struggles for justice that were going on more broadly. So I think it cuts both ways. I see, I see your point, though. I do. Okay. Uh, David, I would encourage uh, listeners to focus. And that's something that I talk about on a pretty regular basis, uh, that, that we have been conditioned uh, that we are supposed to help white people, uh, whether, I mean, you want to help the book or the film, uh, Hattie McDaniel, Gone with the Wind, I mean, just all the way through, um, that that just mm-hmm. over and over, we're in service to white people, putting our lives, risking ourselves for uh, white people. Uh, and just, I mean, that really stuck out in this area where you've got just busload, literally busloads of black people going to jail every day uh, to ask Dr. King to, to further uh, imperil himself to, to aid some white people. I mean, that is just Predict that, in my opinion, that is practicing racism. And I would say consciously, because she, just from her words, and which you include in the book, she was very aware of what she was doing and, and the potential danger uh, that she was subjecting Dr. King to uh, by making this request, having his name on to uh, help out with her husband. Uh, and she nagged him about it too. <laughs> like she didn't even just just ask. I mean, she she says that she's calling and calling and calling to really press him uh, about this mm-hmm. issue. Um, you also, uh, some of the point, if, if folks have uh, questions they would like to ask, feel free to uh, chime in, uh, 760-569-7676, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you have a question. Uh, that number again, 760 the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Um, just for listeners, for folks who, you know who have not seen the documentary uh, on Anne Braden, read the book, kind of the first time hearing about her, um, she hobnobs with almost it's like a who's who of who was involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, Angela Dave, Doctor Angela Davis, uh, writes the foreword. Uh, to the book. Uh, You've got photographs of her interviewing uh, Rosa Parks, uh, her uh, connection with Ella Baker. I talked about right there, talking to Dr. King. Uh, There's photographs of her with Dr. Cornell West, just all of these folks, Julian Bond, talking about his correspondence with her, Jim Foreman. Uh, Just kind of, as I said, anybody who was anybody. uh, It seemed like she had a lot of contact with them. Um, Just can you talk about how she she was able to, to I guess, get, get contact with all of these folks and, and get such regard from all of these luminaries, black luminaries of the civil rights movement? Well, I mean, I think that she distinguished herself through her willingness to, you know, to, to like, go to the wall in the battle against racism, uh, both here in Louisville in that case and then again and again fighting for the right to dissent at a time when, Blacks, but also whites, were hugely, hugely intimidated and harassed into silence in the 1950s, but also then when the civil rights movement sort of gave birth to the anti-Vietnam War movement, the women's movement, the environmental movement, the nuclear freeze movement, all those movements of the you know, uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, that she always brought the focus back 
into the struggle against white supremacy, that she never really just immersed herself in the richness of black culture, that she always made it her business to speak to other whites um, and, and try to, like, you know, uh, remove the veil from their eyes, so to speak. And, you know, the, the cost that she paid, because there were, there were times when there was a great cost. Um, and she was she was unrelenting over 50 years. You know, it's quite common for anyone to have a phase in their life when they're, you know, a very very involved in a social movement. Sometimes people don't last in that, and she did last. She persisted in raising issues of, you know, housing justice of. Um, environmental racism, talking about that in and to the environmental movement, so that she really, uh, you know, she really lived and breathed that battle against white supremacy. Mm. Um, I just want to get like as as much detail as possible. That's something that I uh, bristle at. Uh, someone saying Ann Braden, uh, or really any white person, uh, that they paid a cost for working against racism, white supremacy. When I think of uh, someone who paid a cost for uh, as a result of racism, white supremacy, I think of uh, Medgar Evers. Uh, when Absolutely. I think of someone uh, who, who paid a cost uh, for the practice mm-hmm. of racism, white supremacy, I think of those four girls. We were talking about Birmingham, those four girls in 1963 mm-hmm. uh, that died at the uh, church bombing. They paid a cost uh, for racism, white supremacy. Uh, what cost did the Bradens play? Pay? You are quite right that she did not lose her life in this battle. You're quite right about that. Uh, I guess, I mean, Carl spent time in prison over it, first in the sedition case that stemmed from the Wade House purchase here in Louisville, but then again because he was called before, as you alluded to, the House and American Activities Committee and asked to, you know, when it was investigating alleged communism in the civil rights movement. So then he spent a year in prison over that. Um, but I think the, the biggest price that they paid was social ostracism. Uh, they were such pariahs, especially here in Louisville, after that 1954 case. And I, I you rarely see a case of someone being that much of a pariah for so long. I mean, Carl Braden died at a fairly young age, age 60, here in Louisville in 1975, and he was still that kind of pariah. Now, she as the civil rights movement, or at least, you know, the battle against legal segregation was largely won, and the idea of equality at least gained some sort of, you know, footing in American culture. In the final years of her life, she did, you know, get, like, civil rights awards and that sort of thing. But for decades, they were absolute pariahs in this town. The children were you know, grew up by seeing their parents demonized on the nightly news. So, again, these costs are relative. They didn't pay with their lives. You're absolutely right. But it could have been that way. You know, there were many, many threats against them. I mean, in their historical manuscript collection at the University, at the Wisconsin Historical Society, there are files and files and files 
of hate mail, threat mail, that sort of thing. So you're right, they didn't lose their lives, but they lost a, a great deal of, um, you know, social capital, we'll call it. Mm. They're still white. And Anne would say that she was always, that she gained a lot too, by the way, that, that she, she was never about the losses or the costs. But I think many of her friends, including someone like Angela Davis, like the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, they were quite aware of the costs and that she could have relaxed into white privilege, just as any white person can do, and that she chose never to do. Uh, that that is simply not accurate, and that that's what I mean uh, about these studies. Um, when we spend a lot of time, or people emphasize these folks uh, again, uh, Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, uh, Jane Elliott, and the excuse that I hear people give is that we don't have representations of white people who are not racist who worked against racism. That is not true. Uh, you're about to hear. Viola Louisa, as it gets closer to the 50-year anniversary when she was killed, you're going to hear a whole lot about her. I can bank on You can bank on that. Uh, just looking at how much Freedom Summer uh, was talked about this year. Uh, John Brown is referenced all the time. Now it's Kim Wise and Dr. Peggy McIntosh and Jane Elliott. You get tons of representations of white people uh, who are allegedly not racist. Now, some of them are more well-known than others. Certainly, I think more people know about uh, John Brown uh, and Tim Wise than Ann Brayton, but I think, you know, they're a good chunk of these folks. And she absolutely, I don't use the term white privilege, but she absolutely was benefiting from, quote, unquote, white privilege, being a white person. She absolutely was. She and she her was. husband. No, you're right. She, the fact, right. I know that. I know. But, uh, that she was still alive. Uh, the fact that she didn't end up like Mumia Abu-Jamal, a fellow journalist who also talks about racism and white supremacy. You talk in your book, the Cointel Pro program. You say in your book, the people that they went after most viciously, most savagely, was people like Dr. King, Asada Shakur, black people who were working against racism, not these handful of white people like Ann Braden and her husband who allege to have been working against racism. We, we had uh, William Ayers on the program, uh, Students for Democratic Society, talking about that. Uh, these folks, he's alive. He admitted that when he was on the program, just the fact that he's alive and publishing books and a professor uh, up in Illinois, that right there is him being a white person in a system of racism and participating, benefiting from all of this. He acknowledged that on the program. So I just, in my opinion, it just does not give an, an accurate representation of what it means. And I just, I don't, I don't feel bad uh, for her at all. I don't think, oh my gosh, she sacrificed so much. I think, my God, Fannie Lou Hamer sacrificed a lot. Uh, Stokely Carmichael sacrificed a lot. Diane Nash, and you can just run all down the line, Gloria Richardson, they sacrificed a lot. They did this as a black person, uh, knowing that they could have been killed at any time, and it's very likely nothing would have been done about it, maybe even celebrating like that nigga got what they deserve. That didn't happen to Ann Brayden. She was a white person. And you even include in your book she had an assistant uh, to help her uh, with some of her, you know, what was going on in her personal life and her career and what have you. I don't think Fannie Lou Hamer had an assistant uh, to help her do her work uh, down in Mississippi. I could be in error, but I don't think that was the case. I think you had a whole lot of black people who uh, just, yeah, I can stop right there. One thing I can say I did appreciate uh, in the book, uh, this is on page uh, 319, because uh, this is something that I think gets greatly minimized. This is something that more people should be talking about, and particularly I would think white women. Uh, you're right, it was also during this time that Anne wrote her letter to white Southern women 
which recalled her jarring sojourn to Mississippi to plead for the life of Willie McGee more than 20 years before. Published in 1972 as a public conversation with the women's liberation movement, the letter was actually a SCEF booklet aimed at feminists active active in anti-rape crusades. It related the story of McGee and that of Thomas Wansley, a prisoner of a prisoner SCEF was currently championing who had been wrongly convicted at 17 of raping a 59-year-old woman in a racially troubled part of Virginia. <laughs> Cautioning women to remember the history of black male on white female rape in the South and suggested that they challenge rape cases in which there was racial injustice and make sure their sisterhood extended to black women too. She wrote, I am aware that my appeal to you comes at a time when the women's movement is struggling to make our society deal with the crime of rape. My position is not at odds with this struggle. It is simply another dimension. For the fact is that rape has traditionally been considered a crime in the South if the woman was white and the accused black, but it has not been seen as a crime and is not now if the woman is black. We who are white will overcome our oppression as women only when we reject once and for all the privileges conferred to us by our white skin. A very important passage. Danielle McGuire has been a guest on the program and talking about this constant uh, racial terrorism, white men raping black females, and that's something that just doesn't get talked about. Fannie Lou Hamer said that this was ubiquitous. Rosa Parks, she also has a diary note where she talks about she was almost molested by a white man when she was working in his house when she was in her teens. Uh, just can you talk about this passage and her challenging white women to speak up about the ra racist and raping abuse that black females face? I think, uh, you know, the kind of message that she brought to this uh, broader range of social justice movements, as I mentioned. So it was directed at with the women's movement to say, yes, you know, good, it's important to crusade against rape, but we must remember that not all rapes are created equal, so to speak. And we've got to remember this history of racism, and not just a history, but a tendency in the criminal justice system to, you know, rank rape against uh, rape of white women as much more, you know, of a crime, especially if it's committed by black men. That is something that was a powerful message for feminists at that time. Maybe not the whole women's movement turned its sights around as a result of that letter, but Anne's very hard-hitting writings uh, were part of her work throughout those years, part of her effectiveness. And this, I think, is among the, the strongest I think, pieces that she ever wrote and had a big influence on people of, you know, the, the, the women's liberation movement generation. Mm. It, that influence, in my opinion, has waned uh, drastically because I, I still hear uh, these very same accusations today uh, from many black females, many non-white females uh, in total, uh, that when we talk about, quote-unquote, women's issues, we are talking about white women. Uh, I think Michelle Martin, she did a great piece 
she used to operate Tell Me More on NPR, and they canceled the show uh, in the middle of the summer. But uh, before leaving, she did a great piece where she talked about that very issue that frequently when we are talking about, quote, unquote, women's issues, we are talking about white women uh, almost exclusively. That's who we're talking Too about. Too often that is still the case, but it is not the case the way it was in, like, 1971. And that's in part because of the the voices of these amazing women of color feminists like Angela Davis, like Bell Hooks, but Anne Braden's voice was part of that same crusade is all I'm saying. Okay. And all, I'm, all, all or nothing. All I'm saying is I, I think it has largely unchanged uh, from this time period when she originally uh, made this speech. And I would point to uh, current events. Uh, we can just look at things that have happened over the last uh, two to three months, uh, that there was huge uproar uh, for Jill Abramson uh, when she was fired from the New York Times, uh, and that this was done because she's a woman, misogyny in journalism, you don't have women uh, editors and running big papers, tons of that conversation went on for months. Uh, we had the same thing, Elliot Roger, uh, the non-white male uh, who did the shooting in uh, Southern California, uh, right, in, right around the same time, really. Uh, the Yes All Women, huge hashtag, lots of conversations about violence against women, misogyny, sexism, in an event where there were a total of seven lives, uh, seven deaths, uh, including the shooter, a total of seven. Five of them were males, but somehow the dialogue was violence against women. Uh, that was huge, and the only females that died were white women. Now, you just come a few weeks down the road, you have Renisha McBride, I don't hear any of these chants for violence against women. I don't hear white women out on the forefront saying, my goodness, this black female was referenced as it. Uh, this, in the same type of uh, what they call slut shaming, saying, oh, she was under the influence and all these other excuses. I didn't hear the same human cry. And then you had uh, Daniel Holtzclaw, enforcement officer in Oklahoma, who has been arrested and charged with raping at least 10, and it's been reported consistently, exclusively black females enforcement officer going out and serially raping black females. I haven't heard a hue and cry from white women about that either. Um, yes, all women. This is deplorable. How are we going to have a peace officer going out and doing this? And I've not heard that at all. So in my opinion, it is very consistent. And I think even some of the scholars you mentioned, Bell Hooks, I've heard them say that it is still at the core, really, of a lot of what is called gender studies or women's rights, women's liberations, whatever other terms are used, talking about this, they're exclusively talking about white women uh, and have frequently become quite hostile uh, when issues get raised of, hey, racism, white supremacy uh, is at work here and how non-white females, uh, particularly black females, are marginalized and or ignored uh, when we start talking about, quote, unquote, women's issues. Uh, you're saying you don't think that's true? Well, I certainly wouldn't say that that problem has been stamped out and eliminated, but I think that there is a much more, uh, uh, what I want to say, inclusive and social justice, racial justice, anti-racist set of voices in the feminist movement that are the result of the struggles of people like those we've just been mentioning. No, I'm, I'm sure that Bell Hooks would say, Bell Hooks lives here in Kentucky. I had a conversation with her not two years ago, and she's, you know, yes, it's not perfect. It's not sure. But I think that the the level of understanding and of willingness to take on 
issues of racism in the feminist movement is way broader than it was in 1970. Mm. Wow. Um, uh, let me say this, I guess. I thought we were going to talk for an hour, and um, probably only got about five more minutes here. I don't know what your time frame is. Oh, okay. I uh, thought the email I'd said uh, eight to eight to ten, but we'll uh, we'll make do. Uh, folks that are listening in, if you all have questions that you want to make sure you ask Dr. Fossil, uh, you should get your hand up now. Uh, make sure if anybody has a question they want to ask before she uh, departs. I'll keep an eye on the switchboard. Um, I just uh, I think number one, uh, and I'll just give you my well. Let me ask: What was your purpose in writing this book? Well, I think that uh, I'm generally interested in the sort of uh, radical underside of, you know, 20th century U.S. history, and I'm especially interested in women's history, and I'm especially interested in anti-racist history. I think my discovery of Anne Braden was, uh, you know, meaningful to me as a white woman, and it, it just ended up that she was willing to sort of uh, work with me to a limited extent, let me say a limited extent, on an oral history-based biography. I also am passionate about oral history. So my purpose in writing the book was to really, um, you know, underscore that there are there, there is this um, sort of history of, anti-racist radicalism that is white and black and in the deep south and across the nation and you know endure I think for me it also meant a lot that her work endured over time so it's a hopeful message I think um, coming out of her life story okay that uh that makes it very clear. I'll just say quickly before I get to uh, the caller. For me, just what you said right there and the purpose of writing this book, that right there for me uh, underscores why I think this sort of thing is very dangerous. Um, and it's not even really helpful. Uh, I think you can learn some things, but I think the bottom point, the bottom line for me, and it even gets expressed in the book, uh, most white people are not going to do this. Uh, Ann Braden is not representative of most white people, and white people are not going to voluntarily stop practicing racism. Uh, and exactly as she said in the book, there's a tendency, in my view, to overplay uh, the mm -hmm. type of white people who are alleged to have worked against racism. Uh, and in my opinion, that right there is an act of racism, white supremacy. Uh, the fact that people know so much about uh, Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, when there were nine black bodies found uh, in the weeks where they were searching for those two white boys and James Cheney, people don't even know their names. Uh, it was just ho-hum, another nigger, we're trying to find these two white boys and James Cheney. Uh, and that, I just see that pattern over and over again, and it just gives, in my opinion, a, a, an inaccurate representation of white people. Um, the callers, the people that dialed in, uh, call it 2456. Did you have a question for Dr. Fossil? Line should be open. Hi, thanks for taking my call, Gus, and hello to Gus and the uh, listeners of CALS. Um, and to the guests, I just have a question. Um, I know you probably hang around a lot of, you know, white people. I just want to ask, out of all the white people that you hang out with, do you think any of them are aware of 
like some type of fear that they could be harboring of black people as far as white genetic annihilation. Are you familiar with that term? Um, and um, I'll, I'll mute my line and take the question. Well, uh, white genetic annihilation is, is, is not something that I've heard a lot about. I think, are you asking if I'm aware uh, if the white people I know uh, come to terms with the, with their own fears of people of color, is that the question? That, that's that's what I'm asking. Yes. Well, I think any white person who is going to be thinking seriously about uh, racism as a system, the power that it holds in American culture, has got to t- come to terms with that. Yes, I think. You know, a lot of people that are involved in groups like, you know, showing up for racial justice, which is a white-led or anti-racist organization, there's a lot of open talk and discussion about that very dynamic. It's a very harmful dynamic, but it's it's almost inevitable, I think, given our own histories as people. Okay, um, well, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. See if we can nab these other two callers really quick before you exit. Um, the caller at 5640, did you have a question for Dr. Fossil? Oh, hi. Yes, hi. Good, good evening, Gus, and the callers, and good evening to the guest, Dr. Dr. Fossil? Yes. Hi. Um, Kate, so, please call me Kate. Oh, okay. What happened to Ann Brayton at the end of her life? And also, was her husband, um, did he fight, um, you know, for social justice for uh, black Americans? Uh, Was he as vigorous as she was? And also, too, did they have any offspring? And today, um, are are those offspring, um, are they um, also... Uh, what are they doing in terms of uh, continuing her legacy for social justice for African Americans? Well, her husband was as committed as she, but he died fairly early relative to her. I mean, she lived uh, 31 years longer than he. He died in 1975. But mm-hmm. but up until that time, since the late forties, up until his death in 1975, they were absolutely a team. So when they purchased the Wade home here in Louisville, they acted as a team. When they edited the Southern Patriot newspaper, sort of publicizing civil rights news across the South in the 50s, 60s, early 70s, they worked as a team, absolutely. He was as committed as she. I think that he was, um, he came into the social justice movement more from the position of organized labor whereas it was really segregation and racism that, you know, sort of caused her to break with her past more, more fully. But um, they were both committed to the struggle against racism, against colonialism, against racism in a global sense as well. Their children uh, had, a, were, had a very hard upbringing because of what outcasts they were here in Louisville. And they left Louisville and did not become activists as such. Uh, Her younger daughter has been 
you know, a, a English as a second language teacher. She's been very involved in sort of the struggle for global literacy, um, but not the kind of crusaders that the parents were. Thank you, Madam. Her daughter, uh, did her daughter have a child with a non-white person? I'm sorry? Did uh, her daughter have a child with a non-white person? Yes, her, her, her daughter had a biracial family, a couple of ch two children actually. Okay. Has a biracial family and grandchildren now today. Okay. Uh, and the last caller at 0673, did you have a question for Dr. Fossil? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, peace, Gus. Uh, peace to the guests. Uh, thank you uh, for having this show. Um, I have a question. Well, one, let me state uh, my understanding um, to the guests is uh, uh, this show, is, the purpose of the show is to help black people understand the ways of racism and best ways or practices to counter it. Um, I'm wondering mm -hmm. uh, in your book, do you address um, directly or indirectly the subject of economic equality or reparations? Mm -hmm. And uh, if not, um, I would like to hear what your thoughts um, are on um, economic justice. Well, I think my, uh, my book does not really talk about reparations. Anne Braden was, you know, uh, very supportive of reparations. It was not the main issue that she worked on in the latter years of her life when that's become more of a live issue. Um, in terms of economic justice, though, she was always, even in the, you know, in the late 40s, the, the early civil rights and labor campaigns that she first became politicized through, it was always about economic as well as racial justice. It was really about black and white workers coming together. Um, I think more what you, if you're talking, like specifically on reparations, uh, I think reparations is uh, an issue that needs to get a fuller hearing. I think, I think generally I'm a supporter of reparations, but I think it's extremely hard to, um, you know, it's an issue that hasn't found much traction in American politics in part because of white supremacy, uh, you know, it dates back, as you know, I'm sure, to the whole concept of uh, 40 acres and a mule and the denial of, of those kinds of, um, you know, uh, any kind of reparations at the end of slavery. So I think it is a discussion that needs to happen. I think it's a policy issue that needs to be uh, more at the forefront than it is now. I think there are other creative ways where reparations, you know, we can, we can get closer to reparations than we are right now. But what I would just like to just just add to that, um, my experience is that when I do see Europeans or um, uh, sort of try to take the banner on of trying to um, dismantle white supremacy um, in this this uh, North Wilderness of America, I never I have my experience has not been where they are trying to um, amend the uh, disfranchisement 
of black people. And uh, normally when, when we do come together, uh, that whether it's about jobs or, or women's pay or, or something of that sort, it's still mm-hmm. a, uh, the black folks are still on the bottom um, in, in those situations. And so I just, um, it, it would be interesting for me to learn and maybe some of the callers to learn why is it that even uh, when we so-called try to unite uh, for causes, uh, that uh, it's still, we're still at the, the bottom of the, the list when it comes to uh, uh, economics or money, you know, uh, buying power. And um, so mm-hmm. I, and to me, to me, and one in, in you, there's a picture of that you're out here fighting for a cause for all of us, but in actuality, you're fighting your, your uncle for just to get a bigger piece of the pie, and the black folks are being pimped and not being able mm-hmm. to see the real reality of what's going on. And I think that is another trick of the, the propaganda of uh, white supremacy, how they play both sides. But it would be interesting if we could have a European that was out there voicing real loud and real strong and real clear that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, that the, the great disparity um, in economics and buying power, um, and when I say buying power, I mean purchasing value and power. I know people say that black folks have buying power, but look at the, the purchasing value of that power. Sneakers are not going to buy, uh, uh, you know, a substantial uh, politician in, in, in where we can get things passed in laws, if you understand what I'm coming from. I think we got the, the gist. Did you have a, that was, you just wanted to get your statement in. Did you have a response to that, Dr. Fossil? Well, I mean, I think you make a very good point that, you know, I think that there is not enough public discussion and certainly people of European descent not leading that public discussion enough of even just the difference between wealth and income. You know, even in communities or in populations where there's some sort of income parity and there are few between blacks and whites in American culture, that the wealth gap is is enormous and the wealth gap flows out of this extreme, like, you know, blacks being denied generations of the ability to build wealth. Appreciate that uh, response. Uh, I guess quickly before you exit us, a listener just wrote in. She wanted to know, since you uh, do research uh, in women's studies, uh, can you name any illustrations, like recent illustrations of white feminists coming out to support black females? Oh, well, that's a, it's a very good question. I, you know, my, my research is in history. I wish I could think of an anecdotal example. I can't actually think of one easily, and that, I guess, is telling. I can think of some historical examples from the 80s and 90s, but, I, you know, you, uh, Gus, rattled off a number of examples that are you know, illustrations of the problem. I wish I could come up with an immediate illustration of the solution. I don't have one. 
that speaks volume. <laughs> and uh, finally, have, have, has at any point, has a non-white person ever suspected or accused you of practicing racism? Um, yeah, I think so. I, I haven't been uh, called on the carpet about it, even to the extent that this conversation has provoked lately. But, yeah, certainly in my life I've had that. Oh, okay. Can you give us like a quick uh, example uh, before you exit of like what the specific context of the situation was when they suspected or accused you of practicing racism? Hmm. Honestly, I guess I've just gotten a pass in recent years because I can't think of a specific example. I feel that there have been some times that I've been accused of racism certainly as a younger woman, but I'm, I'm sorry that that is, you know, a, 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 um, a case study is escaping me at the moment. Okay. I mean, I think that what I, what I face more commonly is uh, something that is uh, very fair and more, more widespread or more overt is just like, you're not doing enough. Well, if, that, if that's the case, I agree a thousand percent uh, for you and, and any other white person who says that they are against racism. You all are not doing nearly enough. And I would say the same thing if Ann Braden was still alive. Uh, the book that we discussed, uh, Subversive Southerner, Ann Braden and the Struggle for Racial Justice in the Cold War South. Uh, if you want more information uh, you can go online uh, for the Ann Braden Institute, uh, where our guest, Dr. Catherine Fossil, is the current director. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed having you on the program for the exchange of views. Appreciate the uh, information and hope you enjoy the rest of your Thursday evening. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Evening. Evening. Thanks for having me. Night. Yes, ma'am. Context of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, quick tidbit I will, I will get in. Um, being able to read the whole book, man, man. Uh, this is at the bottom of 317. I'm, I want to read this a couple times just for emphasis. And this is the subheading, Rise of the New Woman's Movement. The emergence of women's liberation, or what historians know as second-wave feminism, was a positive development in the late 1960s social landscape, one that blossomed just when the black liberation movement was under the severest attack. <laughs> let, me, let me read that again. The emergence of the women's liberation, or what historians know as second-wave feminism, was a positive development in the late 1960s social landscape, one that blossomed just when the black liberation movement was under the severest attack. I'm going to read that one more time. Because <laughs> this, is, this is the response when I was reading it. It was one of those like, oh, wait, what did she just say? Uh, so one more time, last time. The emergence of women's liberation, or what historians know as second wave feminism, was a positive development in the late 1960s social landscape, 
one that blossomed just when the black liberation movement was under the severest attack. You can uh, judge a tree by the fruit it bears. Uh, I would say you can just think for yourself. If you think the quote-unquote white women's liberation movement, if that was a part of the severe attack on black liberation in the 1960s and 70s, uh, you can ponder on that for yourself. Uh, some of the other parts uh, from the book that I thought were interesting and in, in making my point, and I just I feel like scholarship, if, if you paid attention to the audio clip that we started with where you heard uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal talking, uh, where he said, reminded me of the help. He said that his mom in their house, they had a picture of white Jesus, they had a picture of John F. Kennedy, and then they didn't get a picture of Dr. King on the wall until he was assassinated. Uh, and that not that in the help where uh, how to get away with murder is coming on Viola Davis, I think her character, that's exactly who she has on the wall. I think uh, the photograph of JFK and white Jesus. I think that's in the help. Uh, but I think that is that, for me, gets at the core uh, of why this sort of narrative, this sort of work is dangerous. This is another aspect of racism, white supremacy. That program with Zach Casey where he talked about the impossibility of positive white identity. White people, racists, they understand the value of victims believing, hoping, praying that there are some good white people. That is extremely important. I think for racist woman, racist man, racist child, they cannot have white people analyzed collectively. The type of analysis you get from Dr. Marimba Ani Urugu, where she just does broad, general analysis of their behaviors, which are consistent. White people really cannot allow for that because that starts to give you an accurate understanding of who we're dealing with, the problem being white people, uh, and you start to not get so caught up uh, in the emotion. Like they, they have photographs, the photograph that I used, I was going to use the one of her interviewing uh, Rosa Parks, but I instead went with the one where uh, she's in a deep embrace and talking to uh, Dr. Cornell West. Uh, black and white photo, that has huge currency. Uh, as I said, this book, it starts off, the foreword is written by Angela Davis. Uh, if you watch the documentary, it's got Fred Shuttlesworth in it. Uh, she's got a photograph with uh, Rosa Parks, photographs with uh, her and Dr. King, uh, photographs with her and uh, Ella Baker. I mean, these are luminaries. These are people that, you know, are revered uh, throughout the history of what is called the civil rights movement. How could you possibly question this good white woman She's got all of these character witnesses, people to stand up and say, yes, she was a great white woman. She bought that house uh, for that black family and endured all of, of, of everything, being charged and, and being sent to jail. And what are you talking about? She dedicated her whole life. That is not representative of white people, as Dr. Kanban said. It is not statistically significant, and that is a huge part of exactly what she said, overplaying white people. The few white people, and I do mean few, uh, who allegedly were not practicing racism. And I, even that should be contested. That's why I use the word uh, allegedly, because I am not convinced that even these folks, Ann Braden, Jim Brown, whoever else you want to throw in there, Timothy Wise, Jane Elliott, 
I am not convinced that these folks have stopped practicing racism. I think what they're doing is just another facet of racism. And as I said, I point out with Dr. Uh, excuse me, with Ann Brayton, her asking Dr. King to support her husband getting out of jail, that right there is an act of racism. Uh, the fact that she was able to have an assistant to help her do her work and live to a ripe old age. Uh, she didn't die. She wasn't gunned down. She didn't language, languish in prison uh, like Geronimo Pratt like Mumia Abu-Jamal, like Angela Davis, uh, being locked up for years in some instances, decades in some instances. That didn't happen to her. She's out chilling, having biographies done on her, documenting. Come on, man, that's ridiculous. Uh, and I think white people, they deliberately exploit that aspect of how we have been brain trashed and programmed to seek out white validation, to seek out a well-meaning, not racist white person. They know how to play on that, whether it's through White Jesus, whether it's through Kim Wise, Jane Elliott, and Braden, that see, there are some good white people. You just got to have hope. You just got to maintain. There are some good white people. The help, you do have one good white person. She's going to help you out. Skeeter is wonderful. She's going to write this book and help you correct racism. Don't believe the hype. <laughs> just to, to emphasize that she has, this is on page uh, 315 of her book. Uh, where she's talking about uh, the shooting at Kent State, uh, where she writes, let's see, in part, 1960s radicalism fell prey in the end to its own disillusionments and excesses, but especially in the case of the African-American freedom movement, government repression propelled its decline. The movement of the 60s was crushed. I was traveling around the South in those years, and in just about every community, the black organizers were either in jail on their way there or just out because of a huge struggle. Harsh sentences imposed on SNCC and black Panther activists all but paralyzed the groups they served. Minor weapons violations and numerous instances of draft resistance carried inordinately stiff penalties, but more egregious injustices were also rampant. One SNCC leader in Houston, Lee Otis Johnson, fought off 16 charges in the course of 1968 only to receive a 30-year sentence for allegedly offering one marijuana cigarette to an undercover agent whose testimony was the only incriminating evidence. Similar cases targeted rights leaders in virtually every southern state. In Wilmington, North Carolina, the Reverend Ben Chavez and nine others who became the Wilmington Ten, some of the more than 40 black activists imprisoned in that state faced a total of 242 years in prison on charges of firebombing a grocery in the midst of violent attacks on the black community by white supremacist groups. In Orangeburg, South Carolina, state police violence against African-American college students protesting racial discrimination left three dead and 37 injured, though this incident preceded the shootings of four white students at Ohio's Kent State University by two years, it never received the public attention that Kent State violence did. Uh, that, in my opinion, is extremely important. And in fact, on that one, uh, the footnote uh, even offers some extra detail. Let me see if I can uh, give you that footnote really quick um, to just further make the point about how uh, these scraggly few white people get uh, very much overplayed uh, when we talk about so-called white, so-called good white people that were not racist. Um, so the footnote on this one reads, Okay, the footnote reads, 
For more on the Black 60s Southern Patriot, it would be truly mind-numbing to read a complete litany of anti-black incidents of this nature during this period, but it must be noted that less than two weeks after the shootings at Kent State, two African-American demonstrators were killed and nine wounded in violence at Jackson State University in Mississippi. That also does not get very much play at all. In fact, uh, same with Ann Brayton. They got documentary films and books written about Kent State where these handful of white people got shot down. Uh, they have within the documentary that I've seen on Kent State, and they probably got more more of them now, uh, but they give like 30 seconds to talk about Jackson State where these black people were shot and killed and just like, oh, yeah, that didn't get any attention at all. Niggers, who cares, whatever. <laughs> but it, just reading this book, I, I, didn't, I didn't know at all uh, about uh, what happened to these uh, college students in South Carolina. Uh, where three people uh, were killed and 37 injured, uh, where that just gets no publication at all. But I just, I think that's just a part of it, uh, where white people, uh, as I said, it's it's deliberate practice of racism, white supremacy, and in my opinion, it's done to exploit uh, that contamination of us wanting to find some not racist white people that hope that white people can be rehabilitated if we just get them to the white privilege conference, if they just read Dr. Fossil's material, they will stop practicing racism. And nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, at any rate, take a quick commercial break, and then we'll uh, check in to see if uh, folks have anything uh, they would like to share, if anything stood out, uh, what they heard from the broadcast. Um, read that sentence one more time just because I thought it was hugely important. When Dr. Welsing, when she says reading is more important than watching television, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but again, this is the bottom of 317, the emergence of women's liberation, or what historians know as Second wave feminism was a positive development in the late 1960s social landscape, one that blossomed just when the black liberation movement was under the severest attack. Hmm. Context of white supremacy. We will be right back after the commercial break. RacismDaily.com, your number one source for global news reports on race, racism, and overt actions of white supremacy. From Asia to the Americas to Europe to Australia to Africa, racism is not a thing of the past. It is our current reality. Be informed. Be globally informed. You should be the first to know. RacismDaily.com, RacismDaily.com, RacismDaily.com. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? Counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, 
even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Do you need a one-stop shop for all of your multimedia needs? Triumphant Multimedia is a skilled team of professionals with a passion for great marketing and chic design. Our specialties include consulting, brand development, copywriting, and creative graphic design. That's second to none. We also offer photography, photo retouching, videography, and video editing. At Triumphant Multimedia, our goal is to provide highly effective creative solutions built to suit any individual need or budget. Give us a call at 678-732-8067 or check us out online at TRI Multimedia.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Justice with the Cows Radio program. If you want to learn about, understand, and counter racism, white supremacy, be sure not to miss a cows episode. We keep them jammed, packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words to help eliminate the system of racism, white supremacy, ASAP. Also, to be able to invest in my counter-racist efforts, co-hosting the cows radio program, please visit my blog, justdojusticetoday.blogspot.com. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. I got an uncle real crazy. My uncle B, 55 years old, hates white people, married to a white lady. And he's sitting around going, you know, these crackers ain't shit. Except for Susan. And he tried to explain the whole thing to me one day. Say, yeah, 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 I got a white wife. I love her. She loved me. That's all that matter. But I tell you this, if the revolution ever come, I'll kill her first. Just to show these crackers I mean business. <laughs> motherfucker cracker ass, motherfucker cracker. Shit cracker, motherfucker. Well, hey, hey, hi, honey. <laughs> motherfucker cracker, I'll kill my cracker kid too. <laughs> Context of white supremacy. Uh, tomorrow we are starting a new book, new book. Henrietta Lacks, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Sklute, White Woman, Racist Suspect. Uh, We'll be starting that tomorrow. Should be timely with everything about uh, Ebola and racism and health care. Should be good to read. I'm uh, excited uh, about starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific tomorrow evening. Uh, That gives you an alternative uh, to the shenanigans that will certainly be in full force (laughs) by uh, tomorrow evening uh, to stay safe and uh, do something constructive with your Friday evening, uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, uh, study session number one, tomorrow evening. Uh, I'll just say uh, really quick, make sure there's no confusion. Uh, The image of white Jesus and JFK, I believe that is on the wall in the help, uh, not 
how to get away with murder, although there, in my opinion, is very little difference between how to get away with murder and the help uh, with uh, Viola Davis starring in Boat. Uh, there's very little difference, uh, in my opinion, and, and, and that was played out in a, in a, in a most excruciating manner, uh, in my view, last Thursday, uh, that there's very little. I was, as I, I tweeted it, I think, last week, I was waiting for Viola Davis's character to tell one of the white people, uh, you is smart, you is kind, <laughs> you is important. I was waiting on her to uh, to say it, uh, and and it might even be that JFK and White Jesus are on the wall in How to Get Away with Murder. I'll have to look again uh, because they are on a predominantly white campus, so that might be true. Uh, I have to uh, to look again, but yeah, it's uh, it's the help I think where uh, White Jesus and uh, JFK get their get their cameos. Anywho, um, yeah, just I think. Uh, I think one of the things I've touched on before is how frequently white people, when they're looking to validate uh, an aspect of their white supremacist logic, uh, they will attach a non-white person to it. They'll say, well, you know, this, this black person over here agrees uh, with what I'm saying. Uh, and I, I felt the, the force, the weight of that. When, like I said, the, when you open this book, the first words that you get are the words of Angela Davis, uh, who apparently stayed with the Bradens at some point uh, in her uh, time and travels, and uh, her just offering lots and lots of praise for uh, Anne Braden. And as I said, you go through the book, and uh, she's hobnobbing with all these folks, and, and Dr. King and her having correspondence, and seeing her with Fred Shuttlesworth and Ella Baker and Rosa Parks. It's like, wow, you know all these folks, and you're hanging out with them, and, you know, she's got to be cool. She's got to be the greatest thing in the history of ever, you know, and it, it just goes on. Now it's Dr. Cornell West and all these others. like, oh, my gosh, you know, you've you got to think she's just awesome. I mean, she is just the greatest white woman uh, in the history of ever. Uh, and I just, you know, that statistically insignificant. I think we really need to get out of that uh, mind state uh, of where, uh, I mean, it's exactly white Jesus. I think Dr. Walsing, when she uh, was talking about Tim Wise and the impact that he has, it's, it's white Jesus uh, has, has come amongst us uh, to reach out and help. And, oh, my goodness, <laughs> just being overjoyed about it. And I just don't have that at all, even if, if what the white person is doing is constructive, uh, you know, hey, whatever. The most you can do is the least you can do. That's what admitted white supremacist Beryl Winfrey said, uh, and I co-signed completely. Uh, it's easier for white people to get things done. Uh, their group collectively has way more power, uh, and I do not feel overjoyed or compelled uh, to break into tap dance and jubilee uh, because a white person does something helpful to me. Uh, and I just think that that, that right there uh, distorts the picture of, of what's really happening, what it means to be a white person, and how we should view them collectively as opposed to getting uh, confused and uh, overplaying uh, outliers, uh, white people that are not statistically significant, and white people that really don't have any power to do anything. It's not like Ann Brayton uh, was getting black people jobs or home loans uh, or business licenses or uh, firearms to defend themselves. I didn't, I didn't read about any of that in the book or uh, in the documentary film. Uh, at any rate, if folks have questions or comments uh, they would like to get in about what they heard, feel free. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess either the, the comment on the timing of the women's liberation movement coinciding with uh, what she calls black liberation uh, being attacked in its most severest form. Uh, if you have specific comments on 
that uh, or her requesting Dr. King's help to get her husband, Carl Braden, out of prison. I think that's a deliberate act of racism. If you have comments on those two issues, that would be cool. If you have comments on anything else, that's definitely acceptable as well. Any of the folks that are with us have any comments or folks just listening? Hello, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Well, Gus, you uh, did an excellent job. I didn't catch the program at the very beginning, but uh, I was just observing how you was kind of breaking down her um, misassumptions, what I could say it. And uh, so I just want to say, you know, give you uh, praise for that. And uh, that comment that you read about the women's rights movement, um, it's kind of where I was kind of leading on my my question to her, whereas I was engaging about economics, is that uh, uh, what I've learned is that our white supremacy, they play both sides of the, of the game. Uh, well, on one side, they appear, of course, blatantly that you can see they're working against you. And the part where supposedly they're supposed to be working for you, even under the fluff of that, they're working against you. And so um, it doesn't surprise me at all um, how they basically target our women uh, more so to get them out of the homes, divide the family. Um, and where basically the, the babies are then being raised by the, their school system and, and the, you know, the, the propaganda that's going on. So it, it all works. It's one revolving connection. Um, it, all the dots connect. So that's kind of my, my insight on it. Total system, uh, each component supports the uh, ultimate objective, uh, primary and fundamental objective of the white collective, uh, continued eternal domination and terrorism of black people, especially non-white people in total. Uh, the caller is 6492. You should be with us. Uh, all the other folks who had a hand up, your line should be open as well. If you had any uh, comments you wanted to get in or questions or if anything was confusing, didn't make sense. Good evening. This is Flora. Um, I don't know. I think this particular program upset me more than most in that, especially when she got to the part, you know, when you were asking her about what white people have actually done, you know, what, how is it that, you know, nothing changes? And, um, and, and, you know, it's like it all ties together, you know, even though these things seem to be disconnected, it really is the same. And it's really um, the racism, white supremacy is the foundation. And, you know, it's almost like for, you know, like they have this little smug attitude. Well, you know, who me? Would I do such a thing? You know, not me. You couldn't possibly be talking about me. But, yes, some of those people did it. And and it's too bad they did it. And I would never intervene to try to stop them from really doing it. But, you know, I understand your pain. That's basically it. You know, and even, 
you know, like the women's movement. You know, I've been asking that a lot about, um, like Marissa Alexander. You know, where are the feminists? You know, not one peep. I've heard there's there's some other group, a black feminist group. Uh, someone told me one day it's womanist or something, but I really haven't heard them um, doing anything either. So it's just it's just very I don't know disturbing to see how the depth and how ingrained it, this whole system is. It's it's so ingrained. Even even hearing her when you were mentioning you know black women being raped. And, you know, how easily they can dismiss such things. It's like, and it just dawned on me, because this is how it's supposed to be. It's been normalized. And um, those are my thoughts. So I will mute my line. Mm, Definitely appreciate that. Um, I would even even say, uh, just because I like to, I like to emphasize that white people are not ignorant that they are hypersensitive uh, and aware of white supremacy racism, that it uh, is normalized. It is expected, predictable. <laughs> Black females being raped, that's just expected. That's what's supposed to happen. That's how we know things are operating uh, as they should be. That's the status quo under white supremacy racism. And again, I would just, I can reference white scholarship or black scholarship, either way you want it. You can check uh, Rosa Parks' diaries where she talks about uh, being uh, sexually assaulted by uh, some white brute that she was working for when she was in her teens. Uh, this white racist trying to rape a child. Uh, the same thing for Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, where she talks about that. And I think that's at least. Uh, Three different books, four different books that we've uh, had on the program this month, five with uh, Richard Williams. I think uh, it was in That Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, uh, We Will Shoot Back, uh, Crystal Tyler, Wheat Money, uh, Richard Williams, uh, Black and White, The Way I See It. And I think it was one other book that we covered this month where you that just comes up over and over again, uh, black females being raped by white men. Uh, and I'm sure it was black children, black males. I mean, white people do that wholesale, but that element specifically, um, not being talked about, being omitted, uh, and where are the white women at? Uh, I mean, you could say that then, 1950s, you could say that now. <laughs> Daniel Holtzclaw, I haven't heard white women jumping up and down. As I said, the New York Times, uh, and I checked two weeks ago, they don't have one article, not one, on Daniel Holtzclaw raping all of these black females. How can that be? When we just spent all this time hand-wringing and shaking fingers at Ray Rice, how is it that there's not one article, not one sentence about Daniel Holtzclaw? I mean, just it's constant. Uh, it's constant, and, and, and that is not an accident. That is not uh, white ignorance. Uh, that is not white people being unaware. That is they have total disregard for black life, black children, males, females, whatever. Uh, any and everything can happen to you. We don't care, and, and that's what we expect to happen to you under the system of white supremacy. May I say something else? Yes, ma'am. You know, and, and you say that, that I've been kind of uh, getting arguments with my friends about that stupid show scandal. I can't stand that show. I can't stand the way... Um, Olivia, you know, she's she after all that work she did, she doesn't have the dignity 
to have her own man, she's got to be the president's jump off. You know, that doesn't, that makes no sense to me. You know, I, I can't see her going through all she did to achieve, you know, running this business. It, to me, it's out of character. I'm, I'm, I know everybody loves it. They just enjoy it. But I don't enjoy it because to me, white people believe what they see on TV about black people, right? And I don't want one of them getting the wrong idea, and then, then I have problems. Because I'm not going to put up with it. You know, back years ago, um, when they, remember when they had that thing, there was a book or something about female genital mutilation, right? Alice Walker did a book. I'm minding my own business at my own lunch, and one of the the doctors I worked with suddenly has a desire to discuss this book with me. It's like, you know, I don't know anything about I've heard of it, but, you know, I, why of all the topics in the whole universe, suddenly you think I'm going to be an expert or, or this is something I would like to discuss with you? See, you know, they just, it's, to me it's too easy for them to get out of hand. And, uh, and it's, too, it's too hard to, you know, for me anyway to make them treat me as a professional that, you know, there's nothing else between us. This is a professional relationship. And and I just hate to see them get these ideas from these stupid TV shows. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah, wild. Think, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just, pardon me, I was just going to uh, add to that. I think many of uh, these events and even... Uh, the guests on the show, uh, many of these, uh, the way they project these subject matters, it just reinforces uh, white supremacy values, you know, at the core of, like, my what I do is more valuable because I do it, and what y'all do is not as valuable because, uh, you know, it's not coming from white people. And just like the shows, they, even though we're on a, uh, for example, like you was using uh, Scandal, but again, it places a certain type of white supremacy value on black women. So they, you know, they can skirt tail it, put it in a high position, or make us seem smart and witty, but her consciousness, her awareness, of who she is and her worth and value is still low. And so at the end of the day, um, you, the, the whole message of that black life is worthless is really the subconscious message that's, that's really just keep, keep getting pumped out. And so I think that when you look at it, what, you know, there is, there is no progress. And I, I'm kind of like you. I don't understand how the, I see them on Facebook, you know, going on about it and different things, um, but can't really see that it's really um, a control, controlling our conscious awareness of our work, you know, just another means of doing it. Yeah, with- I think with uh, the television programs, I think just when you 
don't understand racism, white supremacy, everything else that you do understand will only confuse you. And I think uh, the non-white people who enjoy scandal, uh, I suspect that they probably do not have uh, as much clarity as needed, as is needed uh, with regards to the system of, of white supremacy, racism. Uh, on the other hand, I think white people, I think uh, their enjoyment uh, of these programs, uh, I think just further evidences their understanding and appreciation of racism, white supremacy, because I think they totally understand the dynamics uh, of these uh, types of programs and these racist representations uh, of black people, uh, a lot of the help, uh, or driving this daisy, or scandal, or blackish, or whatever, whatever it is. Um, I, and I, I think also just, uh, as I said, with this, these types of works, why you have so much scholarship on uh, 1964 Freedom Summer, uh, James Cheney and those two white boys uh, who were killed, uh, as I said, or John Brown. Uh, Viola uh, Louisa is going to be coming up, uh, I think, 67, 68, be coming up in, in about three years or so, uh, three or four years, the 50th anniversary of when she was killed. There's a reason that there's so much focus and attention to these uh, white people. It is extremely important. I would say it, it is one of the essentials uh, that non-white people believe that not all white people are racist. Um, that is crucial, and it's not accurate. I think she said that if, if you are a white person, and, they'll, and they won't be direct about it. They won't say that if, if you are white, you're racist. That's what it means to be a white person. They'll say that, oh, no, uh, every white person is inflicted with the disease of racism. They'll have some uh, nonsense rhetoric like that to soften it uh, so that you still are thinking of white people as being victims, too. You don't think of them as being active participants uh, in a system of terrorism. You think at all they just get some of the goodies or they just get some of the benefits and they're trying. No, that is just not accurate at all. Um, and I, I would take a passage like this. This might be the last one I read from the book. This is on page 330 uh, where she writes, uh, Anne Braden was the last generation of white Southerner to come of age in a region so rigidly segregated that its own children could imagine it no other way. And she had to travel an enormous psychic distance, turning upside down the messages of her childhood to become a part of the movement that brought Jim Crow down, not the system of white supremacy. Uh, profoundly influenced by the militantly interracial, internationalist, working class ideology of Southern post-war labor and civil rights upsurges, she made a commitment to bettering society and has never swerved from it. Yet Anne has proven to be more flexible than many of her predecessors in what historians call the old left, and her commitment has been more to the ideals of racial and economic justice than to any ideology. In keeping at it for so long, always emphasizing the value of collective action, coalition building, and bridging racial divides, Anne has mentored, some say mothered, several generations of young white Southern radicals and inspired African-American allies to believe that a white woman could be a real sister in spirit to them. I could gag. I could gag. Um, and just, I was going to try to read it verbatim because I can't pull it up, but one of our investors, she shared, this is, in my opinion, it's deliberate well for racism. W.E.B. Dubois, he wanted to write a biography on Nat Turner. White people came along and changed his mind and got him to write instead on John Brown. Why is that significant? That is, in my opinion, the same sort of thing. Brother John, we've had non-white 
victims come on this program and literally sing hymns in praise of John Brown uh, and defend him and talk about what a grand white brother he was. That, in, in my opinion, part of that is because you get someone like W.E.B. Dubois in the same vein, this book, having Angela Davis write the forwards. That's the first name, first words that you see in praise of Sister Ann Braden. It is hugely important that white people overplay, overemphasize these outliers uh, to give some sort of suggestion that there have been a lot or there could potentially be a lot of white allies, a lot of white brothers and white sisters. I can even reference Dr. Rasayan, our, our good vanilla brothers and sisters in the struggle that they're going to step up and do right, and that is nonsense. That is total nonsense. If we're talking about terrorism, if that's what white supremacy racism is, then we need to be truthful about that, and we need to be very truthful about the fact that you are not going to have white brothers and sisters, uh, that that is just the truth of the matter, and if you get some help from a white person along the way, you should be stunned about it and suspicious that there might be a trap about all of this. That is the accurate way that we should be thinking based on evidence, based on a long track record of undeniable history with regards to their collective behavior worldwide. Uh, but just that sentence right there, it, it reminded me so much of that W.E.B. Dubois being redirected to glorify the life and times of John Brown as opposed to Nat Turner, just uh, the, the huge ramifications of that, even, even to this day, uh, and just how much different things would be for black people when you get serious and you start going back and researching if you could have Dubois writing an analysis of Nat Turner as opposed to glorifying a white person, uh, the same thing that I would say here. They, I mean, we're all victims. It's not to fuss at anybody, but just uh, I think white people, they're very good. They know, they know the value uh, of getting renowned and highly regarded black people to speak well of other white people. They know the type of weight uh, that that carries. Uh, and I'll, I'll hush there. Oh, very true. I agree. They're, and they're so clever, though. I guess they've been working on it for so many eons that, you know, they they know they know how to manipulate us. And, uh, and I think, like, like you said before, we're hopeful. I mean, they really can't be that bad. They can't be that mean and vicious. But even though we see them doing it all the time, we saw Mike Brown laying in the streets for hours, his blood draining down the street. But they really didn't do that, right? Angels of light. Appearing as angels of light. Appearing as angels of light, yeah. Yeah. They had Fred Shuttlesworth. Oh, I was just going to say real quick, they had in the documentary on Anne Brayton, they had Fred, Fred Shuttlesworth. Uh, describing uh, Ann Braden and her husband, Carl, uh, as saints. Uh, and, and that, too, for me, just, just emphasized that these white people end up being referenced as God <laughs> for coming and doing this. As I said, Dr. Wells and saying Tim Wise is like the white person that comes and, and puts a, a morsel of food uh, in a black person's mouth that has been starved by the racist, that that ends up being the way that we end up thinking about them. But, yeah, that's in – if you watch the documentary, you'll see Fred, Fred Shellsworth ref, referring to them as, as, uh, as saints. Uh, I think I see the same sort of conversation and talk about John Brown. Uh, the female, were you going to make a comment? Yeah, just speaking of Kentucky itself and, you know, it's part of, you know, America's history of, you know, racial injustice against black Americans. What do you, Gus, or any of the callers, you know, do you, are you guys aware of any 
you know, publicized uh, instances of injustice against blacks that have taken place in in the state of Kentucky? Because, you know, you often hear Texas or Florida or Alabama, of course, or, you know, some other states, but I've never hear, heard of, you know, anything, you know, any such, you know, occurrences in Kentucky. The only thing that I remember reading was of a black farmer um, who lost his land. He had several several acres of, of, of farmland in, there in Kentucky, and uh, he lost it. Uh, the, the USDA illegally took his land because they found that he had extensive mineral deposits on his land, and they illegal, illegally seized it from him, despite he, you know, saying that he had paid off his loan, et cetera. And then in the end, after he passed away, unfortunately, then the U.S., and also after they had taken his land, then the USDA admitted that he had indeed paid off the loan. But besides that, has anyone heard of any, like, you know, instances of racial injustice against blacks in the state of Kentucky? And uh, the other thing, I'm only aware of Berea College. I believe that that's a historically black co- uh, university in the state of Kentucky. But other than that, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, with regards to incidents in the state of uh, Kentucky, uh, the one that, that she wrote about in this book, uh, when Andrew and Charlotte Wade, when they attempted to purchase, or they did purchase a home in a, in a white neighborhood in Kentucky, uh, the house being bombed, um, oh, white wow. people coming and shooting uh, into the house uh, while the Wade family was in it, throwing rocks through the window with nigger on it. Uh, they were uh, just relentlessly terrorized uh, wow. when they did this, and this was in uh, 1954. Uh, and, and that's what I pointed out to her, just the Bradens doing this and being surprised at this response from white people. In my opinion, I can only say that's an act of racism or these folks are astronomically stupid. Um, if they really didn't think that this was going to happen, if they underestimated how their white brethren and sisters were going to respond, that uh, these folks are morons or they're racist or both. But uh, that was one, and I didn't, I didn't know anything about that incident, about the Wade family incident, until uh, I started reading about Ann Braden. Uh, great note, uh, the Wade family, Andrew Wade, uh, black male, he was a World War II veteran. We just talked about the significance of black World War II veterans uh, last week with uh, this nonviolent stuff, Will Get You Killed, uh, how a lot of the black people that were uh, in World War II came back, and they were really courageous in going out to, to fight against racism, white supremacy. But you got another illustration with Mr. Wade here. Uh, and he was about armed self-defense. He got his gun and defended his family, uh, and that's in the book. Uh, but I didn't see anything about the Bradens getting him firearms to make sure that he was protected. Um, other examples in the state of Kentucky, uh, I know we did two programs where the University of Kentucky they, uh, and this was in 2007, uh, the school paper had some sort of racist cartoon where it was uh, fraternities, uh, white fraternities. It was some sort of, of controversy on campus about the white fraternities not getting black people to join. And so they did this cartoon in the Kentucky school paper uh, where it was white, stereotypical, stereotypically racist names like Kappa, Something like KKK would be that would be the name of the fraternity KKK, uh, and then they would have another one that would be like uh, Sigma Aryan Domination or something like that. But they were bidding on black members, and the black students that they were bidding on were on auction blocks, and this became big news. People were like, "Oh man, that's really racist!" And and how would you depict people like that? Uh, we had the uh, 
I think there was one black staff member who was on the uh, University of Kentucky paper at that time, and he came on the program to talk about how all of that happened and how they excused it away and said it wasn't racist and all that. Then I think about three years or four years later, in 2011, uh, also at the University of Kentucky, there was an effigy of President Obama lynched uh, on the campus, uh, and that also became pretty big news. They called the police in to figure it out. Uh, we did a program on that as well. Uh, we got that same black journalist to kind of come back and talk about how that was handled. And ironically, um, this week, I think a lot of people have passed around the news report where there was a Halloween uh, decoration where they had a bunch of black bodies being lynched out in the yard. They were hanging, and this was supposed to be scary, uh, but that was in Kentucky. Uh, that was on uh, Fort Campbell, the uh, military installation. Um, that was this week, and that was in Kentucky. So that's four examples that I can think of. But I don't, I don't think people typically think of, of Kentucky in the same vein as like a Mississippi or Alabama or Florida where you just had tons of, of bombings, and be, which is what she kind of suggested. She was saying that this was not Birmingham, this wasn't Alabama. You didn't have black people being gunned down uh, left and right. Not that that couldn't happen because it did with the Wade family, but just – uh, I don't think there are as many infamous stories out of Kentucky, although I'm sure if you talk to some older black people, they probably could tell you, tell you a few right. things. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Anybody else have any Kentucky incidents of racism in Kentucky? Um, yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yes, not to minimize the, um, the act of colonialism, uh, but colonialism, to me, is the most outrageous act of racism and the most violent act of racism that exists in Kentucky and all other 50 states. You know, the indigenous people do not have their land back. And I don't, we should not minimize the um, power it takes for them to keep, keep practicing colonialism. Um, colonialism was the first thing they did in this part of the world when they wanted to practice racism. So that must be the first thing we focus on because that was their first act of aggression was to um, colonize. And um, that probably be just my little point I wanted to add on that one. I had something else I wanted to say, but I'll beat my line to, you know. Uh, uh, We can make time if you want to get your other comment in as well. I guess to give uh, a quick bit of uh, info, uh, this was a report authored by uh, Dr. Lakin Atemi, MD. I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, but (laughs) the report is titled Reign of Terror and Racism at University of Kentucky Medical School. (laughs) And this was published in 2013. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll see if I can pick out some of the the juicy tidbits. Uh, Despite being home to many notable black Americans and being the location of a great deal of black American history, Lexington, Kentucky has never been seen as having a reputation of being a hospitable place for minorities. Much of this reputation is rooted in the city's ties to slavery. The area known as Cheapside in downtown Lexington was once home to the most well-known slave auction facility in the South. It was here that African slaves were beaten, sold, and let off in chains forever to be separated from parents, siblings, children, brothers, and sisters for the sake 
of the greed and profit of the white aristocracy. It is a horrible legacy, and in many ways, its spirit still exists in the area, though in far less apparent ways. Um, the spirit of racism was definitely publicly and historically evident on Lexington's UK University of Kentucky campus for many years. State law forbade African Americans from attending UK until 1947 when Lyman T. Johnson won a lawsuit against UK and was admitted to the school. It would be 20 years later before UK recruited a black athlete. More on that later. Uh, further evidence of racism at UK is hidden in the names of its buildings. The Chandler Medical Center, the anchor of the medical campus, is named after Governor Happy Chandler. As a commissioner of baseball, Chandler approved the inclusion of Jackie Robinson as the first black to play in the major leagues, but Chandler's pioneering effort of racial inclusion as a commissioner was largely, largely offset at UK by his behavior in later years as a board of trustee member when he consistently used the word nigger openly during board meetings and was never admonished or punished for his behavior. On the contrary, he is seen by many as an, as an admired part of Kentucky history, and his use of the word nigger was considered by more board members and others as harmless and quaint and even acceptable as it was deemed to be the acceptable way of speaking during Chandler's day. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about racism in the athletic program. Uh, today, much has changed at the University of Kentucky's campus, but many things remain the same. It has been 45 years since Greg Page's death, and despite a mission statement that claims that as Kentucky's flagship institution, the university plays a critical leadership role by promoting diversity and inclusion, racism and segregation is still alive and widespread on campus. Racism, however, has changed its form, becoming more subtle, more hideous, and more systematic. But then again, for a look at some far more visible signs of prejudice and racism, a quick visit to the campus will suffice in making racism and the lack of ethnic diversity clearly visible to the naked eye. Yeah, I'll stop there. They're going to give a lot more information about how entrenched this is at the university. But yeah, that's this is from uh, Culture Critic uh, 2013. The name of the report, again, is Reign of Terror and Racism at University of Kentucky Medical School. And I will stop there. I uh, know, Colin, Alabama, you said you had something else. Anybody uh, anybody else have something they wanted to get in? Uh, yeah, like what I was saying, well, I just want to make a quick statement. Um, really, it would probably be just to thank, you know, your show and Neela Fuller, um, about like a statement y'all made where even when I wouldn't I didn't think I was too confused which which I was confused and I still am confused you know what I'm saying but I didn't I never noticed it until I think Nita Fuller said it you know it's like a lot of times we as black people we you know we are thinking white people uh, whether it be the two white guys who got killed down there in um, Philadelphia, Mississippi, uh, whether it be John Brown or Tim Wise, because before I had your program, I mean, I used to be a fan of Tim Wise. I was like, man, look at him go. He's something else. You know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, I, you know, just like we give him a pat on the back for, for effort, alleged effort. You see what I'm saying? Alleged effort. But not the result. 
which is the end of white supremacy. And I think a lot of the times, speaking for, from a person who used to give them a pat on the back, I, in my opinion, I think a lot of black people who do give them a pat on the back, that's one thing they're not comprehending. The point that you and Mr. Miller um, Fuller make, make, um, make when y'all say, um, you know, y'all not giving no aid for effort. You see what I'm saying? We we want the end result, which is the end of white supremacy. And until then, you know, they still racist in my book. I suspect su- racist suspect in the in the book. But um, I just like appreciate y'all for that because I probably wouldn't have been able. To see that, you know what I'm saying? Our good white people, our so-called good white people, even worthy of being allies since they're so in, ineffective, you know. And I, I didn't realize. I say definitely, they uh, they're super effective. Um, you know, yeah, I think even. Dr. Fossil, I think she said that when I asked her if any non-white people, if they accused or suspected her of being racist, uh, she said that she typically gets a pass. <laughs> that's what she said, where they don't, they don't think of it. I think that's standard. I think that uh, we just get conditioned uh, by the way that white people talk about racism. They'll say that it's systemic or it's still around or what have you. But I, as a white woman or a white man, I am definitely not racist. And I have all kinds of, you know, black friends. And I had a black boyfriend in college or a black girlfriend, you know, a few years back. And, you know, I love good times. And I love blackish, you know. How, did you see the health? That's my favorite. I mean, they got all of that uh, subterfuge uh, to make you think that these white people, uh, that they deserve uh, kudos and celebration because they, you know, whatever, they got arrested or uh, they helped a black person get a house or go to school or, or something just very trivial uh, when things have not changed at all. Um, they're very good at that. And as I said, I think it's, it's deliberate, it's purposeful, and they know the value of making sure that we think that there, uh, there are and can potentially be many more good white people, white people that are not racist. And again, I would encourage folks to, to check out that broadcast with Zach Casey. He did a great job. He admitted racist, keep that in mind, but he did, in my view, a great job of breaking down uh, some of the psychology, the mechanics uh, behind uh, how come this is so effective and that it's, it's just incorrect, that we should not be thinking uh, that there are some quote-unquote good white people. We should not be thinking that there are white people who are not racist because it's just not true. Uh, but that program is uh, from April 2010. Zach Casey, uh, admitted racist, admitted racist. Uh, any other folks have comments they want to get in? Well, I like to ditto the gentleman's comments. I really do appreciate it. I was actually, I found him wise also. and But my eyes have been opened. I think I'm, I'm becoming a very angry black woman when I remember some of the things that happened that I didn't realize when it was going right over my head. You know how they say things to you. You don't really quite get what they're talking about, you know. Because I thought, especially when I was, uh, before I moved, I had all kinds of good white people that were my friends. <laughs> and I, now I think about it, I did one, one incident, there was, um, I, was, I lived in Ann Arbor, and there was this, uh, I don't know why, every now and then there was this rapist. You know, before I moved there, when, before I went to college, they had one, and then there was one going around the city, and terrorizing all the women. And we were all sitting there, talking about it one day, and this um, this guy, this white guy was sitting there, 
And I don't know exactly what I said, but I commented, yeah, it's like kind of making me feel uncomfortable too. And he looked at me and he was like, well, why would you feel uncomfortable? Like, what? I was like, oh. And I really didn't get it, you know. <laughs> I didn't get it. So I get it now. So now I'm angry. And I'm, I'm also, that's, a, I guess, another thing about scandal, you know. Why can't black women have dignity? You know, that's all. If, if if Olivia had dignity, you know, she wouldn't give any of those men that she's messing with at the time of day. That's all I had to say. Yeah. Is Kim like Wise, is, is that a fake last name? You know how the English language is so funny, and then he going to try to name his last name Tim Wise. Is that a fake out or what? I thought of that as well. I think uh, that got brought up on one of the programs, if that is his. And I think that was that was a part of why uh, when he was coming on the program, I would address him as the admitted racist known as Tim Wise uh, to right. suggest that that might not, in fact, be his authentic name. Because uh, I, I said the exact same thing, just the, the messaging of that, that, oh, he's intelligent, he's smart, this is Tim Wise. No. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I don't, yeah. I, I sniffed it out, too. Um, thanks. I thought I heard somebody else, just somebody else who had a comment they were trying to get in. Uh, yeah, Gus, I, I was just uh, thinking, uh, uh, just to chime in with uh, kind of understanding about white supremacy and your definition that you use a lot of a lot of times in the show, um, it helps bring some clarity to understand how we can make that position that uh, there are no good uh, white folks who are not practicing white supremacy, racism. Because I think, for me, sometimes we will confuse prejudice with uh, racism, and where you can say which racism is a far larger encompassing type of system. So a person may not have a prejudice, so to speak, if I could use it that way, towards a, a certain black individual, but they may yet still practice the system of racism against that person uh, for an upper hand. So when, for me, uh, uh, I'm continuing to learn to put those definitions in perspective, it, it helps me understand what I'm dealing with. And to the sister that just mentioned that, you know, seemed like she's becoming an angry, angry black woman, I would say, you know, don't let the information uh, make you bitter, but more so let it arm you, you know, arm you so you can um, better counter and know how to make, uh, map your moves in a way that you get the best part, even though they're trying to give you the worst. Greetings, can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Greetings, Gus, and to all the uh, listeners. Sorry I missed the uh, most of the broadcast. 
I was uh, working on the plantation. I had a um, Gentile alias white male in the cab. I thought we were going to have some problems with this goat-smelling ass. Oh, I'm, wait a minute, I'm sorry. Um, I just want to address this whole good white people thing because I've had them, you know, try to make that argument stick with me. And, 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 you know, it ain't worked me yet. But, you know, I just simply go over the whole, um, well, I, when, they, when they'll start talking this whole good white person thing, I'll say, well, listen, the air is not good. The air has been polluted. The water's not good. The food's not good. So how can we possibly be developing good people under a system of white supremacy? And they don't have no answer for that one. So nobody is good. You get throw good out the window. No, no, you cannot be producing good people under, under a system of white supremacy. It's impossible. So that, that usually ends that right there. You, know, you usually don't go no further than that when I have spoken to uh, them about that whole good white person. And as far as uh, I heard somebody mention um, uh, reparations, I mean, you know, that's a start. But ultimately, they simply need to um, surrender all power. That's just where I'm at with it. You surrender all their power. They, they've had their chance to try to run things in an efficient way where people don't get hurt, mistreated, abused, or whatever, and they simply can't do it. Um, you know, I'm of the mindset that the ones that are not committing or not practicing racism, white supremacy, uh, it's not because they don't want to or not they don't have a desire to do it. Uh, they just fight that urge the same way a rapist would fight the urge to rape a female or the same way an, alcohol, an alcoholic will fight the urge to have a drink. You know, this is their nature. And so I think, I believe that's where everybody needs to get, where you see, no, this is their nature. They can't help that. They're begging us to stop them. That's all. They're begging us to stop them. That's our challenge. They're saying, can you stop us? Because we're going to continue to do this. Can you stop us? And I'll mute my line. They're not going to stop. That's, you know, I feel like any of the white people that uh, say they are not racist, uh, that they're going to work against racism as opposed to trying to dig and find a white person who bought a black person an ice cream cone or some gummy bears or never called them a nigger or, you know, got them a sleeping bag. I mean, all this goofy stuff. Uh, you should just be telling the truth. You know, hey, we we not they, we, myself included, we white people are going to terrorize you all forever. It's not going to stop. Don't look for any help or kudos or any of that. Uh, even if I do, you know, hook you up and help you out uh, to solve a problem, you should continue to think of me as a racist and just never waver from that, uh, that we are dedicated and we're not going to voluntarily discontinue the practice of racism. Just make sure that that gets emphasized and that black people, non-white people maintain the highest level of suspicion of any white person. That's the way that they should be talking, uh, not, you know, getting caught up in John Brown or uh, Andrew Schrein, these white guys that, or white gals that were allegedly not racist. I mean, that just 
totally confuses uh, the issue uh, and trying to uh, insist on that we need to work together and multiracial struggle and all that nonsense. Just tell the truth about what it means to be a white person. As Dr. Welsing says, what do white people talk about when there's no non-white people around? Like just, you know, get to all that if you allegedly are a white person and you're trying to not practice racism. But I just, I don't see that. This is about as good as it's going to get. And uh, yeah, they'll just write books and do documentary films to keep us uh, confused and, and continue uh, abusing and terrorizing us. But yeah, just, just being clear, at least being clear on that on our part so that we're not confused and we don't try and get in arguments trying to uh, educate white people or, or get them thinking correctly about all this. Yeah, talking about documentaries too, Gus and the callers. I seen one today. It was a uh, spies, spies in Mississippi or spies of Mississippi, up there on PBS. And then you know they tried to showcase how the, these these victims were basically getting money. They they were sitting in on meetings and they were going back and telling the white the white league or whoever these busters were. They were going back and telling them information, and they really they, they put that on blast, you know, to keep you focused. Oh, your own people are doing stuff to you, you know. But what's the driver? I always have to remind people, what what's the driver of all that, you know? Absolutely. I've seen that uh, documentary. Uh, I think it came out earlier this year, and it's based on a, a book that came out some years ago by a white man. Um, and I, I, I said the same thing <laughs> with the presentation. It's very focused on these victims uh, who got some money to uh, snitch, provide information for uh, white people. But uh, in my opinion, the focus should be on these white people who were paying uh, black people to give up this information. That's where the focus uh, should be at uh, just for a variety of reasons. Number one, I think one of the black people that they were paying to do this, uh, the black person died. And the white people went to his house and, like, took all the files and everything that would have exposed this black person as having been working for them. They went and removed all the files so that people couldn't get an idea of exactly what type of information he was sharing with these white people. And, in fact, if my memory serves, I think the story broke that some of these black people were doing this, that they were uh, spying uh, for these racists. And they got a lot of heat. A lot of black people in the area were very upset about this. And I think that one of the black, I mean, it's not funny, but one of the black people, I think the stress of dealing with all this had a heart attack and died. Uh, and then the white people went and raided his residence uh, to make sure that they removed any uh, potentially incriminating information. But um, yeah, the, the, in my view, the focus of that should be on those white people, not the, the victims uh, who decided to, to take, a bit of cornbread uh, to uh, to share information, but the focus should be on those white people uh, in terms of this is what white people do. Dedication, this is not ignorance. They deliberately formed this group to spy on black people who were working against racism to see if they could do anything uh, that would impede their efforts. Uh, we find out who they are. We'll publish their name and address in the local paper so the white people know exactly where they are. If they want to go bomb their house or shoot into their residence uh, or harass them uh, at their uh, dwelling, they can do so. Uh, and this was done repeatedly throughout the so-called civil rights movement, um, getting them fired from jobs, getting their credit cut off, just a variety of terroristic tactics uh, that these white people are doing. It's uh, the uh, Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission 
Uh, that's the name of the group that was, I think, that was uh, heading up doing uh, this spying operation uh, in Mississippi. Uh, it's just a local Quintel Pro, uh, if you want to think about it that way. But yeah, great documentary to watch. Just that's something to keep in mind while we, while white people will blow up white people like Ann Braden or John Brown or Tim Wise or Jane Elliott as great, wonderful, godlike, saintly white people. They will then at the same time give you this, this image of uh, black people being complicit. you got these Uncle Tom black people that you got to deal with and, and go in as though uh, they are not victims. But, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, let's see. The, I guess the, the, first call, the person who was commenting about Mississippi, spies in Mississippi, did you have something else before we get to the other caller? No, I, I was just agreeing with what you were saying. That that was correct. Yep. Mm. Yeah. I think Mr. Reed had the black filmmaker as a guest on his program as well uh, earlier this year. If you go in the archives, uh, Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, I'm I'm trying to get the white person who wrote the book that that film is based on. I I would uh, be interested in hearing what he has to say. Uh, was there somebody else uh, about the other female caller? Did you have something you were trying to say? Uh, yeah, I was just. Um going to comment that still happening. It's happening in Ferguson right now. The, the local NACP is helping the, um, the witnesses. They've lost jobs. They've lost, you know, places to stay. And so they're, you know, kind of have them in a witness protection program, you know, which is, which is very sad, you know, with all this other stuff going on. They, um, the, you know, there are a lot of young people, and they seem to, you know, they're very serious, and um, they're very knowledgeable, surprisingly. So I listen to their live stream now and then, and um, but they're, they're determined. So they did say they had a, a forum, some kind of forum yesterday, and they said that they're planning for what happens when Wilson, uh, uh, whatever happens to Wilson, that there's not going to be any thing that, you know, any violence that they're going to initiate or they're going to be victims of. So they're, they're working, they're working on a plan for that. Glad to hear that. Yeah, I would, I would encourage again, uh, folks who are listening in that area or anywhere. Um, I think white people want uh, quote unquote rioting and I wouldn't even be surprised if they are working covertly to uh, instigate quote unquote rioting. Uh, so that they have an excuse to go in and be violent uh, and punitive uh, in dealing with black people who uh, are not pleased with uh, what happens when Officer Wilson is ultimately not indicted. But I think that's very smart to to be planning because white people, I think I posted several reports, white people have been planning for months uh, on how they're going to respond to the rioting, quote unquote, uh, once uh, it's announced that Officer Wilson is not indicted. They've had reports on this for weeks now. And I've seen uh, several more this week, uh, just fresh updates on uh, the planning and logistics that are taking place on their side. So I definitely think that's constructive. And, uh, again, I would just uh, – Mr. Fuller, Dr. Welsing, they both said the same thing. Uh, they would be very uh, leery uh, of participating, being in an environment where it's a lot of people, where things could potentially uh, escalate. Uh, and become dangerous, uh, they would be very leery just because it's so easy for white people to manipulate those types of environments, uh, whether they uh, have people that they are managing uh, and directing to do certain things, maybe even criminal acts, 
uh, and or they could just call Mr. Fuller said this. They could just get on the radio and have another officer uh, fire a shot into the air or do something where it's a disruption. You got chaos and bang, you know, we had to shoot him. We were, we were in fear of our life and, you know, we had to defend ourselves. But I would just keep that in mind, be very leery. I think that's, that's exactly what white people want uh, us to ride so they can use their, their new toys. But uh, glad to hear uh, you said some, some of the folks down there seem less confused and are planning uh, and looking to be strategic on how they deal with that. I think that's exactly what we need. And, and I would just say really quick, I think even in the situation in Ferguson, I've seen a lot of this, this same thing. There are, there, are, there are good, good white people. Uh, like coming out and saying, you know, I'm, I'm not racist, it's not me, it's some of the other white people, and I'm down, I'm a white brother, I'm a white sister, and I support the cause. I think I've seen a lot of that uh, as well. I've seen people say that this is not a race issue, that this is, uh, this is about justice, this is not about racism. I've heard quite a bit of that since all this started in August. Uh, we have, uh, I guess, the last few minutes. Uh, anything else folks want to make sure they got in before we conclude? Just to respond to what you just said, they, you know, in that forum they had, they addressed that. They said you can be allies, but this is, this is because of what's happening to black people. And so they kept, you know, you know, kind of putting the people, you know, kind of telling them to back off. You know, <clears throat> they're going to be focused on, you know, study with what happened to Mike Brown, but there's other Mike Browns all across the country, and you can be an ally, and that means you're going to, follow our lead versus um, you're going to come in here and, and take over. They're, they're, I'm surprised because the ones, the ones that were on the forum, they're all in their 20s, you know, kind of approaching 30, and to be that wise, you know, at that, at that age, I'm very impressed. Outstanding. Any uh, any other comments? Folks want to make sure they got in before we wrap things up. Well, I'll assume folks are uh, satisfied what they got in. Um, again, we will be back tomorrow. Uh, first installment. Rebecca Skloot, Racist Suspect, uh, her book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Um, I've seen quite a few discussions over the past couple months about this, this book and what happened with Ms. Lacks, and uh, I think it's timely. Uh, it, is, it is, I think, a very opportune moment to discuss what happened to her in the context of uh, racism and health care with uh, everything that's being tossed around with Ebola right now. Uh, it'll be the same uh, program time, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, this uh, tomorrow, about 24 hours from now. Uh, tune in, very excited uh, about doing the book. Uh, we also will have the compensatory call-in on Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, uh, workplace racism, news items that have popped up, anything that you want to make sure you get in, uh, from the last seven days. We'll make time for that on Saturday. Uh, and then <clears throat> we will, on November 3rd, uh, we should have uh, a white person uh, in this coming Monday uh, to share his views uh, on what is producing these Mike Brown situations where white enforcement officers and white people in general uh, are leading out lethal violence uh, against black people. Uh, he does a lot of study of uh, 
police departments across the country and, and kind of racism, white supremacy, really terrorism, uh, is a systemic, a systemic aspect uh, of police departments throughout the country. I would even argue throughout the world uh, as it relates to black people, but uh, that'll be this Monday, normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, if you get confused, if uh, you're trying to find like that Zach Casey program from uh, April 10th, excuse me, April 2010, uh, if you get confused, can't find it, drop me an email until justice at gmail.com, and I will hook you up. Uh, and we'll see if you can, if you uh, need to find something in the archives, or just have other questions. If you have suggestions for uh, guests uh, or whatever you need to communicate until justice at gmail.com. Uh, you can also hit us on Twitter at until justice at until justice uh, on Twitter as well. Um, definitely looking forward to the broadcast tomorrow. Hopefully folks will be tuned in, ready to roll and discuss the reading. Thank you to all of the folks chimed in. Appreciated your uh, commentary, questions. I uh, hope it was a constructive investment of Thursday evening. Uh, I would uh, encourage safety uh, if you're going to be going out tomorrow. Uh, I know there tends to be increased police presence on these type of holidays, particularly when they pull on weekend. Uh, so I would definitely encourage being safe if you're going to be out on the road or if you're going to go out to do, you know, some partying, what have you. Be safe. Uh, tomorrow is a day that, that white people uh, encourage all sorts of non-constructive behavior, even criminal activity, uh, vandalizing uh, property and what have you, assaulting people, pelting folks with eggs and that sort of thing. So I, I would just be very careful. Uh, there's already been a lot of posts, uh, as I said, that racist lynching depictions uh, in Kentucky. I think they had another one where it was a, a, a lynching of President Obama, and I know it's just these tacky and racist Halloween cartoons. Uh, I would just really emphasize the importance of being codified, be aware of your surroundings tomorrow. Uh, might not be the best day to be out late uh, messing around, and just the typical police uh, enforcement official threat. Uh, not a good day uh, to be intoxicated behind the wheel. Uh, I suspect they're going to be probably a lot more uh, sobriety checkpoints and what have you, and cops just out of cruising uh, looking for someone who might swerve or have any excuse or reason uh, to pull over and harass a lot of motorists. So definitely be careful uh, tomorrow and this entire weekend. Uh, be codified again. Sobriety would be best. I cannot say that enough. Sobriety would be best. Uh, if white people are waging war against us, it would be best to be uh, clear-headed, lucid to make the best possible decisions at all time. Uh, that would be best if you got to consume uh, an intoxicant or what have you. Uh, again, get to one spot and stay there. Uh, if you're not at your residence, uh, you can go to uh, just coordinate the activity so you can be at one spot and that way you don't have to be behind the wheel, run the risk of having contact with a white person that can just, I mean, bring a wealth of unnecessary and, I mean, substantial problems that could be with you for years, not just, you know, a, a minor hour inconvenience or what have you, something that can have uh, lifelong implications, uh, adverse implications. So just be mindful of that, uh, be extremely cautious, and again, sobriety would be best. Uh, creative, we ask that you help us in being patient with other black people, victims, racism. We ask that you help us be patient with ourselves. We ask that you help us eradicate the white chip that contaminates our thoughts, speech, actions, and 
emotions. Help us to accurately understand what it means to be white. Make sure that we have the appropriate, warranted level of suspicion for each and every white person, no exceptions. We have eternal enemies, and they are white. Help us remember to call on our ancestors for strength, courage, dedication, and commitment to our creator-given assignment, replacing white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Universal woman, universal man, immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.